Hello, Heron. Hi, Tom. So, in terms of relative complexity, how are you this week compared to last week? <laughs> Probably simpler. Ah, very good. <laughs> the logical progression. Yes, it's the feels good. <laughs> so, I have a series of topics here. Do you have any topics you want to start off with? Well, I just wanted to talk about the Percocet. Okay. Because that was a complete waste of time. I kind of warned you of this. So for folks listening in who may wonder why I just mysteriously started talking about opiates last show, Heron and I had had a discussion offline associated with Percocet, Oxycontin, et al. And I was kind of of the mind that um, you would be feeling as you're feeling currently. Do you want to explore it at all? Or well, how do, you how do you seem to think I'm feeling? <laughs> so so you're, you've taken it currently? Or you've taken it in the past? No, I took it. Uh, you know, I took it the next night. Oh, okay. You know, but it was it was just nothing. I mean, I, I might have felt slightly more relaxed than I normally do. Yes, and that was it. There was no come down. There was no go up. There was no nothing. Hmm. It's just, and, and actually, there wasn't even that much pain relief. Um, I've got. A shoulder injury. Well, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I mean, I can, if I do certain things, my shoulder hurts. And, um, and so I was going to use that as a test. And it wasn't as bad as it normally is, but it, it certainly didn't stop it. Hmm. So my, my wife could have had a stronger dose than what you took. I mean, I've got no Maybe. way of compar comparing it. I, I certainly noticed the effects, but I didn't notice the effects greatly, but I did notice. I mean, the emotional come down was very different than the, the come down was far more noticeable than the effects of the oh, oxycodone. Yeah. yeah, there was no come down. There was no nothing. It was like I I hadn't taken anything at all. Real, like I say, I, I might have been slightly more. I mean, I'm usually pretty relaxed, but I might have been <laughs> a little more relaxed, uh -huh. which was nice. I, I mean, that wasn't bad, but uh, you know. But yeah, compared I, I, to a, a standard, you know, four or five glasses worth of Sunset Blush, I mean... Oh, yeah, well, I can... Well, oh, no, way less than that. Yes. It, it was <laughs> It was like, you know... Well, it wasn't like anything. It was It was like... It was like I hadn't taken anything at all. Hmm. You know, it, it was... Uh, I was. It was quite a surprise to me, actually. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect, but I expected something. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I guess that's what I was pointing towards. I mean, I, uh, you've taken codeine pre previously and other things like that. I mean, you're familiar uh, no, with the opiates? Uh, no, I, I've never, never, uh, I mean, I, I, after, I think I, I think I took something like that 30, 40 years ago for, after an operation on my wrist. Mm -hmm. And I did have, oh, they gave me something before. What the hell? I wish I can't remember the name of it now. Before I went into the operation, that was really good stuff, whatever the hell that was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted some more of that. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, it was just, it was just nothing. It was, um, like I say, maybe it was just not strong enough. Maybe I need to take eight of them or something. But, uh, I, I, or something. I think probably this. Well, I don't know what to think, really. You know, I, I just, that's the end of the story. <laughs> Not much to it. Yes. Well, those kids today crush it up. I mean, they crush up oxycodone. I don't know. I think Percocet is considered too mild for... I mean, obviously, they can take quantities of it, but I think the oxycodone, which seems to be... 
you know, a, a stronger dose, they still crush yeah. up so they can take it in volume. Yeah, I well, like I say, I just am unfamiliar with that territory. So, um, you know, and I don't have any burning desire to explore that, you know, from what I've read about it. I was just interested to see what would happen. Uh, you know, <laughs> so I, I saw. <laughs> yes. And you, you you came, you saw, and you were disappointed. Yeah. Well, like I say, I was hoping for something, you know. Yes. Some new little corner of my my brain that I hadn't seen before or, you know, something. Well, I, I have a series of topics going in this direction, but I was wondering if you had any other topics before we got to those. Oh, no, not really. I, I'll probably, if things come up, I'll interrupt you and change the direction. That tends to be the way it goes. <laughs> this is why I keep written notes to kind of reaffirm whether or not we've covered particular topics. Yeah. So I've been going through some kind of reevaluation, which we can talk a little bit more about later in the podcast, perhaps. But um, it came to a kind of head this morning when, I, I guess over the past two days, where I've been feeling a real kind of niggling discomfort associated with a variety of things. And out of the blue, I received an email from um, Bruce Damer, who's who I've discussed previously, yeah. just saying that he dropped his wife off at the airport and he was coming through the part of the Bay Area where I work. And did we want to get together for lunch? Well, it just so happened I had a, an hour or two without meetings, which was a rarity. And um, we got together for lunch and had a, a nice chat. In fact, it reminded me that... This is basically what I've missed out on living in this part of the world. Um, and one of the reasons I moved here was actually because Bruce would be close by and because we had a kind of ongoing friendship. I mean, I've been very candid in our discussions associated with Bruce, and I think that's probably indicative of the length of time that I've spent, you know, working with him over 14, 15 years now. So it was nice just out of the blue to go out to lunch yeah. with him. And it, he made, he discussed a number of things that are going on with his life currently that seem to realign with certainly what my views of things should have been when I, when we, you know, caught up maybe two years ago and the legacy of my decision to move to this part of the world. So as that plays out, I will give narrative accordingly. But one thing he did talk about was, um, the Terence, so, there's a legacy associated with Terence McKenna that I think both of us affiliate with in one way or another. And there was some controversy because the, a series of Terence McKenna talks are put out on a podcast called The Psychedelic Salon, uh, run by a fellow called Lorenzo Haggerty. And one of the, I, you know, I lose track of podcasts as we've talked about with your Gender podcasts. I mean, I can go for months without listening to podcasts and then I yeah. kind of binge listen to them again and these kind of things. So I'd missed a gap. Of, I don't know. I mean, it was over the period probably midway through last year. And apparently there'd been some controversy associated with a talk that Bruce had given on Terence McKenna, obviously celebrating 2012, Terence's legacy. And I couldn't work out what was going on with that talk. I'd heard various bits and pieces and Bruce had made mention of it. But the, the total story is that apparently Terence had taken, I mean, Terence's narrative associated with the heroic dose. Uh -huh. is something that has kind of gone on and kind of permeates through the discussion, particularly associated with DMT, but also psilocybin and all these other chemicals. And the part of this that has not been spoken about was that he had, and I don't want to use this, I mean, the term isn't particularly good, but he had a bad trip, basically, in 19, in the late 80s, and he stopped taking psychedelics. 
aside from very rare occasions, but he basically became almost completely teetotal <laughs> from the late 80s. Really? Well, that's okay, yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, I think it remains coherent for both of our viewpoints, but then you start exploring the advocacy that he was doing through the time. And, of course, there's, yeah. as you'd imagine, there is a long social narrative associated with... Well, I can with- absolutely see uh, advocating the use of drugs and not taking them in and saying, I got my lesson. Yes. <laughs> you know? But I do think you should go get your lesson, too. So the interesting thing about his the bad trip experience was that it was described by his ex-wife as being very, and this is my term here, I'll use the term nihilistic, but really a sense of absolute (laughs) hopelessness, that it was just complete, absolute (laughs) hopelessness, which I, if if ever there was an essence in the universe, I think that is probably one that could easily be found. Of course, along with anything else. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we've we've all found absolute hopelessness at one point in our lives. Yeah. Oh, sure. (laughs) Um, Until you realize how pointless it is <laughs> to have that opinion. Certainly, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because if you come in with the realization that we clearly both have about absolute hopelessness, then one could see quite... Fil- but the interesting thing was the his whole narrative associated with the mushroom talking to him and yeah. all this kind of stuff. So basically he had a falling out with the mushroom sometime in the late 80s <laughs> that he didn't falling dare... with the mushroom. That he didn't dare talk about with anyone else. So it wasn't ah. public knowledge. Ah, yeah. Well, so, sure, that was... Yeah, I can see that, yeah. So then you have all the interesting shtick that he was doing, and Bruce is now... Um, and that was a long time ago, too, you know? I mean, he was such a pioneer, you know, he must have had all sorts of repress, you know, stuff he was dealing with as, you know, back in those days doing what he was doing. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I think the interesting thing is the, so there's, there's another thing that Bruce focuses on, which I actually take, I mean, I've re-listened to the audio, the specific audio that Bruce references associated with this. Uh-huh. But there was a thing which I've described to you previously called the trialogues, where yeah. he, uh, Rupert Childrake. Yeah, I've heard some of them. Yeah, but Ralph Abraham got together yeah. and had some discourse. So Terence described a circumstance associated with computers existing on virtual computers, which exists today. And the ability of these virtual machines in the virtual environments already created by computers uh, having an ability to change their code, which, funnily enough, exists today as well. In fact, it fits into well, another you again, What year was this? So this was in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s. So oh, the mathematician okay. and the biologist, Sheldrake and Abraham, said that this was a paranoid delusion <laughs> and that we should stop saying this publicly. <laughs> So Bruce is actually very sympathetic to this, that it was a paranoid delusion, but I actually know, I mean, literally in the past three days, I have spent time with, you know, an academic and an engineer who developed these systems. So my view is that it's very, I mean, it's, it's kind of extreme nerd. I mean, you need to be an extreme nerd to understand how these systems operate. But he did. You have, don't need to understand how they are. Well, exactly. <laughs> that, the the, the question is, and we had this discussion associated with Watson, I think, maybe two years ago, the Jeopardy playing computer. Mm. That uh, you know that I mean, I know in both implicitly and explicitly that there are systems out there that are beyond my knowledge, but also exhibit properties that are cumulative based on things that I've observed at various points of time. 
And moreover, if I take the logical progression associated with that, there are probably some pretty amazing systems out there. And that we haven't even begun to exactly. imagine yet. Yes. Yeah. So this is the... Well, the hardware thing. has really made a big difference, oh, obviously. Well, <laughs> the hardware and the concept. I mean, I think it's yeah. a combination of two things. Well, that, the har yeah. hardware leads the way. Yeah. Well, well, well that's so no, 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 it, no, that's yeah. silly. Anyway. No, they yeah. affect each other, yeah. So the interesting thing is that Bruce is very negative about this vision of McKenna, and I'm very positive what, about it. Negative about what? Ver the oh, vision the of the virtual computers writing their own code. And this existing in an almost like a virtual reality universe yeah. that humans are yeah. yet to explore, but will be put into. And okay. this whole and, notion and of Bruce doesn't like that idea. Bruce doesn't like that because he's got a long narrative associated with, because he goes and talks at the Singularity University and he, he integrates himself with Singularity folk periodically. Yeah. And he has yeah. to maintain that narrative, whereas I don't. And my view is that actually... Do we, does he really think he has to maintain some well, sort of it's, position? It's interesting because I've tried to... I mean, obviously, when conversations are recorded, things have to go in a particular direction. But I think actually, as with Kurzweil, there's a genuine naivety associated with the technologists or futurists or whatever what you want to call them, because they don't actually see a lot of the kind of, you know, nuts and bolts trench work that most of us who work in you know, these enterprises are exposed to. It's a bit, you know, when you dig in the salt mines, you get a better sense of, you know, the the salt, for want of a better term. And I think the nature of the kind of visionary futurist is always very removed from, you know, what what constitutes a day-to-day... -day uh, yeah, how the life. code gets written. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but not only how the yeah. code gets written, but how the code evolves, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it becomes... Well, yeah, that's really... Well, those questions, of course, are fundamental ones for, for the next few decades, Certainly. at least. Yeah. You know? yeah. It, it, frames, it frames reality um, yeah. in a very yeah. strong way. So well, yeah. Well, it actually... Be, ah, you know, it finally destroys that word. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly my point. That's exactly yeah. my point. So anyway, it was funny, actually, because Bruce is now embarking on his own podcast series. I think he has three or four that he's recorded so far, mainly of audio of like this, I don't know, existentialist Indian fellow. We had this conversation associated with Bruce moving to kind of cult visionary, uh, maybe two or three conversations ago. And I guess I hadn't realized that ultimately what he was describing was um, disenchanted realism, that basically what he was removing himself from was the long kind of psychedelic narrative of McKenna. So having had this discussion with him, I went back and listened to this or the band audio that had to be pulled, which mysteriously was reinstated after McKenna's brother published his book. And it made me realize on one part, yes, it is, it is really very interesting that Terence McKenna did have this bad trip. And well, it, and how confirmed? It, I mean, these stories are interesting stories, but how much credence can we put in them? Well, the point that I made back to Bruce is that the there are very few honest visionaries out there. I mean, if you look even, I mean, my wife and I had this discussion this morning associated with Jobs and Wozniak, and we've had this discussion previously. My view is that a large portion of what is known as computer fact is actually mythology associated with from the Apple one on. And it's eulogized mythology to eliminate a wide variety of lesser known characters that actually had pivotal roles at various points of the development of these systems. Oh, yeah. 
So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that's true in, of history in general. Though, without question, is that the the names that are remembered are just a select few here and there, but they rested within a mass of people who were actively engaged. Certainly, you know, but, and participants in. Yes, yeah. exactly. But the nature of what the the you know the likes of McKenna has to be is almost a caricature of his true experiences or the experiences that he's had. I mean, the nature of how he moved from, you know, these relatively closed talks to larger and larger talks to now, you know, vast quantities of audio in the public domain. Yeah. Er, Well, but see, that's all there is. There's the audio. Yes, Make of it what you will. All these other stories are, you know, if you want to know McKenna, listen to McKenna. Well, you could say the same thing about, you know, the Beatles or Bob Dylan or the Rolling Stones or, you know, any of these musicians that they are cultivating a... Something which is ultimately false, but may be used to motivate others. Well, that's all marketing bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, this is this is the argument associated with McKenna that he actually got into that marketing bullshit in terms <laughs> of his, you know, the way he framed uh, himself. Well, but look what it did a good job. It got the idea, you know, it got the material out there. Well, it's given something for you and me to talk about this evening. So, yes. <laughs> I, the whole this whole idea of selling out. You know, is just exactly what I'm confronting myself now. Mm. You know, it, 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 I find myself thinking in terms of marketing. How do you get people to accept new ideas? How do you package ideas such that people are attracted to them? <laughs> so anyway, I went through quite an interesting breadth of informa- emotions while I went from first talking to Bruce, then to listening to the audio and then to realizing actually Hearing Terence's voice, I couldn't really hold anything against the man. I mean, Bruce's narrative is he basically advocated a very dangerous cognitive path in terms of advocate. Although I've never heard him advocating that young people took heroic doses, but advocating that there was an insight from taking these heroic doses. Well, if, but if you've listened to McKenna, you know, if you're the kind of person that listens to McKenna, if you can get through that, you're not just an idiot. You know, you you probably, well, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) There's probably a good chance that a bunch of them are idiots. The prerequisite is listening to McKenna. It's not, yeah, no, I think um, it's interesting because, I mean, he has a a kind of self-selecting legacy. I mean, when I first heard about McKenna, having not listened to him through the likes of, you know, Doug Rushkov and people like that, I have a natural aversion to people who didn't go to Australia. (laughs) <laughs> where I had a bit at that time. And particularly dealing with Rushkov and his whole kind of Pax, Bay Area, everyone. I mean, it's, you know, everything that needs to be known has gone on in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I'm just going to fly there, write a book there. And then that's the whole technology revolution. Thank you very much. Although, as I've long time advocated, he spells Steve Jobs' name throughout, <laughs> wrong, throughout the book, which in and of itself is an interesting <laughs> fact. But I think the the thing that I found from listening to McKenna, which I hope actually, I mean, this is the blueprint that we are both kind of continuing on, is that this audio legacy actually may motivate others in the future. Who knows what they'll do? Yeah, it's not our business. We just put it out there and, uh, oh, actually, and we already know that... Uh, People have been influenced and, and are happy with it. Maybe not a whole lot, but a few. Yes. You know, find something of value that for them to consider and think about in their own lives and that they're not probably going to hear uh, on the evening news. 
Very true. Very true. That's our niche, Heron, not the evening news. <laughs> Anything but the evening news, right here. Yeah. Well, we may talk about that, too. You never, I mean, nothing's off limits. <laughs> yeah, the Pope gets pushed aside, but everything yeah. else is, is, is talkable. <laughs> so, yes, a number of topics covered with Bruce. I had a few more to raise, but we'll, we'll get into the general discussion, um, I think. So, this comic book project, I wanted to give an update just to give an update associated with it. The, we are now down to a single artist. The um, Argentinian, for whatever reason, just couldn't draw faces, which is a relatively large flaw in finding a comic book artist. He could only draw the same kinds of faces. He did maybe three or four basic attempts. The Indonesian, however, amazingly, first drawing captured every element, and he's now working on uh, the first ten pages of his section. But the thing, ah, the oh, thing that right. struck me about the comic book project is, and I've talked to my wife about this, that I probably need to frame it in a longer-term setting. My aim was to get something done by a kind of June time frame. But really, I don't want to, I don't want to force a time frame on this artist. I want him to be able to yeah. produce his best. Yeah, time. absolutely. And just to hell with the time frame. Just That's right. Work, it, it, you know? yeah, it's, it's, it's now a collaboration between the two of you. Exactly. And also, and... I, I think the, the, my frustration with Kickstarter needs to be independent of this thing. And if I finish and Kickstarter is in a smoldering ruin, which may be the case in a kind of July, August, September time frame, then at least I will have something, you know, something to show for this whole process. And... Yeah, I, I think I've just got to be at peace with that, and certainly I've uh, I've come to terms with the fact that um, well, it's it's going to be interesting actually to see. I've now I've now put my it, every week the number seems to uh, update. I think I'm up to sixteen. It's going to be more than sixteen projects that I put money into through Kickstarter, and so <laughs> far all I have is the caramels. That's all that I have. <laughs> Were they good? They were actually. My wife liked them more than I did. Um, half of them were bacon caramels. Which, bacon? Yes. Like in pork? As in pork. As in pork wrapped with caramel. Hmm. Which was, I found it just a bit too salty, but my wife seemed to gravitate towards that. So that's where we moved on that front. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, some of the other things, I, I, it just astonishes me. I really, I need to stop looking at the site. I need to basically detox from Kickstarter, let it yeah. devolve into a smoldering ruin, and then come back to it when I have a... a, a well, see, know. what else comes out? You know, that's the thing is, over the next decade, just imagine the things that we can't even imagine that are going to show up. Certainly. <laughs> you know? Certainly. I mean, yeah. Facebook, the more I look at Facebook, I'm just totally blown away by... I mean, you can. There's a lot to criticize about it, but but to facilitate people communicating with one another, yeah. Whether you're, you know, showing pictures of your last drunken brawl or, <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, it, those of us who choose to actually exchange information, it's an amazing tool. Hmm. So you have, I mean, you have a phenomena associated with Facebook that I haven't been able to cultivate. And I think about this in, in squish terms as well. Mm -hmm. Because in, you posted on your Facebook page, and I 
decided not to comment because I've known you for three years instead of one or two years. <laughs> that, um, you, that you have you, that you have some real friendships that you've created through Facebook over this period of time. Oh, this has connected me. Like I say, I was a hermit for uh, probably 30 years. And, you know, I knew there were other people out in the world, but I didn't know any of them. I mean, I read books. I, I knew that there were people like that, but there was no, te- again, the technology saved my life. Now I know people all over the world that I think of as friends or people I talk to regularly. Um, they're closer to me than anybody that, that I know. Phys- well, not anybody. I do have a couple of long-term friends here in the area that I see. But aside from those two people, these people are the, are the closest people on the planet to me, and, and doesn't even make any difference where they live. You know, it's, it's amazing. I don't even want to, to meet them, actually. I've had this couple times where people were in L.A. and wanted to get together, and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> yes, you are, you are in a kind of hub city, aren't you? It's yeah. interesting. I, I befriended Tom Vine on Facebook. Yeah. Um, I don't even, I don't get the sense that he knows who I am, but I don't really care about that. I was just more interested yeah. in, you know, being part of a kind of broader Aaron Stone community. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was interesting actually seeing his photographs and things because I mean, as he talks to you, you can see those periods in his life kind of captured in photographic form as well, which I found quite interesting. <laughs> I've never even looked at his photos. Oh, haven't you? Uh, you see, I use Facebook for something distinctly different. Aaron, which is just pure unadulterated voyeurism. I mean, I use... Well, Facebook. I do that, too. I, I do that, too. <laughs> but I use the news feed for Oh, that. yes. Yeah. You know, because then I can... Because at least the voyeurism is of, is of a group that I've sort of selected. Well, is, you know, so it's sort of focused, you know. Via Facebook this week, and this actually fits into multiple topics, including Facebook voyeurism, I saw a post that Australia has experienced... 21 years of consecutive economic growth and they have an unemployment of roughly 5%. And this is lauded as a very positive thing because the government is currently unstable there or whatever it might be. Um, And it's interesting, actually, the framing of this because I reflect... I mean, the first thing that occurred to me was that's not been my experience of Australia... And every time I go back to Australia, I really, I mean, I get the sense that there's economic prosperity. I just don't get the sense that um, it's accessed by the population in any meaningful sense. And it's one of these curious things, particularly, you know, when they say the stock market is up. I mean, here, you know, unemployment is relatively rampant. But the cost of living in Australia is just off the charts. I mean, of my age group, very few people can afford, well, no one can afford to buy this kind of houses that, you know, my parents' generation own quite comfortably. It's one of these things where if you get on the roller coaster at the start of the upward trend, then everything's fine. But if you get there, you know, five, ten years <laughs> too late, you're yeah. screwed. You yeah, know? absolutely. And as my generation has. Well, in that yeah. game. Yeah. I mean, it's just, obviously, it's just time to play a new game. Well, that was my feeling, and I <laughs> yeah. got off the island, didn't That's I? right. So, That's yeah, right. it's yeah. interesting, actually, because I was reflecting on the people I know who stayed in Australia and what their economic, you know, what, what has happened to them financially, professionally, these kind of things. 
And I think the group that has been extremely successful, and I went to I went to government run education. I didn't go to a private. But ed- crocodile trainers are very do very no, well. I hear. The, well, <laughs> of the people I know who've stayed in Australia and have done relatively well for themselves, they've either gone into the public service, which has kind of given them you know, comfortable kind of middle-class living circumstances, or in the case of a number of the women I went to school with, they've married business owners and basically completely elevated their (laughs) social standing by, you know, marrying into money. And it's interesting, actually, in terms of the kind of Facebook folks that I'm attached to, because you see that in a really striking series of photographs. I mean, this is... This is the the kind of voyeuristic economic voyeurism that Facebook provides yeah. to me. Oh yeah, is that I can see, you know, and the folks that um, didn't do either of these things seem to live, you know, okay. But um, yeah, I not. I mean, I actually like the volatility. I like living in an economic environment where, you know, occasionally house prices go through the floor, so I can actually afford to buy a house, and you know, these kind of things. I mean. Food, for example, is remarkably <laughs> cheap. I mean, it's interesting, actually, because the Australian model of food subsidisation is that you subsidise the farmers and then the farmers still charge what they want to charge, which is kind of what occurs in the US, but it's just slightly more pernicious in Australia. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's a very strange... So these two indicators should never be used, I think, in order to... I'm surprised that you so. find that acceptable, The that... Uh, Rather than just reject the whole damn system, you just want to figure out a way to game it. (laughs) So this is, this is an interesting point. And this has certainly been my reflection over the past week or two. I have been considering. So there's a kind of culture, which obviously we are, or I feel very much part of in this part of the world associated with being busy. There's this cult of being busy, you know? You're always busy. You're always That's doing right. something. Sure, it means you're important. If you're busy, you're important. Exactly. And it's used right. to fob people off. It's used to... I had a fellow who contacted me about how to <laughs> do some podcasting, and I'd basically given him the general blueprint. In fact, he's a listener to this very podcast, uh, Peter Stimple. Hats off to him. And I realized that I, I through aversion, through seeing the use of the busy term being used... I never actually refer to myself as busy. I may not have a lot of time to stare at the wall, to use a hair and stone term, but I certainly don't, because I don't, I mean, in circumstances where people need me, I'm typically highly available, and, you yeah. know, whenever I can make time, I'll make time. But I would certainly, I mean, when I think of my life, I think of the production component of it still as very much a central part in terms of producing these podcasts, in terms of producing novels, in terms of doing these things. And it does take a vast quantity of my time that I don't think regular people do. I mean, when I talk to even my co-workers. You mean people with no point in living? Is that what you're talking about? I'm not talking about that. (laughs) Because, I mean, look, you said, I mean, I'm not making any, I'm not making any claims associated with the principles of other people's lives. I just feel the the production the psychology of production is something which i feel very much in the minority associated with but i do find kim folk you know yeah i don't i don't think yeah most people i don't think are the slightest bit interested on the planet most people are just trying to survive yes you know and the rest of them uh, want a 50 inch tv and a new car yes 
you know, so, <laughs> so production about... is uh, for a tiny little group of people. Here. Certainly. But I mean, <laughs> I thought about how can I, which I guess is your narrative. I mean, this is associated with what you're trying to do this year in terms of maxima, well, understanding what you want to do, basically, being able to take a step back. And as I look at my calendar. No, it's definitely not a step back. Well, you know I mean, what I'm saying. It's not, taking, you know what I'm saying, though. I mean, I'm not saying. Yeah, no, I know you didn't say, but it's not that either. It's, okay. uh, I don't know what it is. That's the beauty of it is I, I, I've decided to reject any metaphors. Yes. <laughs> so it is a good metaphor. It's just I'm not going to accept that one either. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, yeah, my own view is that, um, I've gotten the sense, and this is, this is to do with my physical body more than anything. And a large part of it is also going to the gym. That something is really fundamentally wrong. That there's something that needs to be resolved through this process. And I'm not really clear what it is, but I mm-hmm. think it requires, and this has been a, you know, constant ongoing occasional topic for us. There has to be some form of radical change going through this process. And See, I, first of all, I'm stuck on on classifying it as something is wrong. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, that's one way to look at it. it. It's also just as reasonable to say, you know, I can see a whole lot more than what I've got. You know, no, there's... because it's not to do. It's not. I mean, if anything, if anything, in terms of resources, I'm. I've got nothing to complain about. And that's part of the problem because I would, I think the resources. No, if you're in a perfect position. Yeah. You're, if, yeah, if you're worried, listen, I worried about paying the rent most of my life. Yeah. And that really isn't very productive. Certainly. (laughs) So, yeah. So now the question for you is, yeah, you, okay, so you've more or less mastered that domain. Now what? (laughs) Well, I have a luxury of being able to assess what I actually like in terms of what I do. And I think that's the interesting, that's the interesting thing that I'm considering currently, that I should probably maximize what I like, that lends itself to my survival, obviously, and then start looking at the parts which aren't part of that, that I still continue to maintain in some kind of critical assessment. And it's an interesting process because I work with a number of people who are, who have been either small business owners or independent developers or, you know, have, have had gravy trains of, of good size through their own efforts. And it's interesting actually getting the kind of critiques and also talking to Bruce Damer today because he's in a different position, but certainly could afford to, you know, change some direction in his life. And yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the, the comic book as an idea, as a, as a test bed for something may lend itself to other things through that. I mean, I've got the, you know, five chapters of an open source book and these kind of Is things. Is it not worth doing in and of itself? Without question. All right. The, and the, the rest doesn't make, does the rest really make any difference? Because, well, you see, I was thinking about this over the week associated with model rail radio. Now, one of the kind of instigatory podcasts for me to start Model Rail Radio is once again the fellow who started is once again trying desperately to get donations and he's not even recording the podcast anymore. He has someone else who records, he's got talent and editors who do the podcast <laughs> now. And I contacted one of the talents through the week and said, look, I can, I can do all your hosting. I can get you, there's the thing called the Internet Archive. 
you don't need to charge your listeners money for this content. Do what you do best, which is producing content. And you don't need to have this constant narrative associated with this thing is costing me $300 a month. The listeners need to pay me, which is this fellow's legacy, even though he's no longer actually recording the podcast. He's still making demands on the listeners to pay him. Which, uh, so anyway, I thought to myself, I can't, I can't invest enough energy to solve these people's problems for them. No. I've already solved that with Model Rail Radio. Yeah. But I have an amazing vehicle. I mean, Bruce and I were talking about this today in terms of folks who listen to Model Rail Radio and listen to Stone Ape, of which yeah. there are, you know, there are a good number. And I think through this group, <laughs> it, I think it's pretty, pretty I, I guess I got to lighten up on the railroaders. Huh? <laughs> no, they seem to like it. They seem to like it. I don't know whether the, these are obviously the misogynistic Model Railroaders or whatever, the, the sadomasochistic Model Railroaders that just want to be beaten and play with trains. I think this is the, this is the group that you were. Okay, good. That's my listeners. group. Yes. I finally found my audience. Yes. yes. <laughs> you can whip them with train, with model train track and what have you. Anyway, moving on from this. So, you know, it's, I think the thing about it is, and we've talked a bit about time, because when you were talking about your calendar, your um, lunar calendar, I made the point that I actually think the problem is time itself, as in, you know, hours. Time itself. Well, yes. that's a good one. And <laughs> my ahead. frustration is, firstly, I am very, I am probably one of the most regimented people you will meet. I wake up at exactly the same time. I'm very organized in my time. But this time hierarchy is a prison cell. It's something that, and I mean, you feel this too, it, to a it, certain extent. Not, not, no, not anymore. I don't. No, see no, no. It but that if, way. I mean, for example, if I yeah. said that we were going to record at seven, and instead I got here at seven thirty, you would have something to say about that. You damn right, I would. So this is my point. I'm yeah. very similar, and yeah. all I see is from anyone who's not similar is an idiot. Well, this is the thing because in in my work there are hierarchies, and the people the higher people go in the hierarchies, the less reliant on time they are they just don't care okay well that's yeah okay you can get away with it in this system if you're in that position that people will adjust themselves to whatever the hell you want to do fine but this is my point i mean my point is that if if the you know if the serfs are are controlled by this time thing to the point where you know they're, they're rising and sleeping or you know mandated by this oh yeah the calendar rules people's lives yes have you ever noticed that uh, Monday through Friday are in the middle and Saturday and Sunday are on the opposite ends of the calendar? Of course. Why is that? You're, I mean, what is the – why isn't it – Because on, your production it, is the most important That's thing. right. That's right. Your weekend, yeah. fuck your weekend. Exactly. <laughs> it's not important. It's just simple little things like that, but that's what that's the way people think. So I I'm looking towards because I think if I if I can create my future, which I believe I can, I'm looking towards. If you only knew what the hell you were. Well, no, but I mean, no. Look seriously, I think the, what I've seen up until now has basically told me what I like and what I don't like, and I'm growing into a position where. What is told to me in terms of the next logical step is exactly the opposite of what I want to be doing. And it's interesting because I was talking to Bruce Damon today about my experience at the Artificial Life Conference. I saw a whole lot of up-and-coming kids, basically, who were, you know, PhD-level university students, 
and they had taken the easy path. They just kind of slopped between, you know, degree into this position. They had, you know, no understanding of grit in terms of yeah. historical grit and these kind of things. They just moved the easy path. And I've tried to avoid people like that because it makes me feel dirty to be around those people. Firstly, I have very limited abilities to converse with such people. But more importantly, I just feel it's like a different species. I mean, you've talked yeah, about Yeah, they're previously. yeah, they're just they're they're not doing what you're doing. <laughs> so, you know? so they can do what they're doing, you do what you're doing. <laughs> so from this, you know, I I I realized that there are certain things that I need to define you know, what my future looks like in some regard and aspire to reach some of these goals and the impact of time. And I am someone who sleeps very lightly, whose sleep is frequently disturbed or non-existent. And because of the regimented nature of my life, it was worse when I lived in Las Vegas, but it's still pretty bad here. I don't, you know, I don't feel that the time constraints that are applied to me actually are to my productive benefit. In contrast, when I worked with startups, although I got considerably less sleep, I was able to sleep roughly as I wanted to sleep. I would start working when I wanted to start working, and I'd stop working when I wanted to stop working. And the regimentation of the, you know, 9 to whatever day or yeah. 8.30 to whatever day was just by and by. If I needed to sleep, I slept. I worked when I needed to work, and I was far more productive, and I felt more intellectually fulfilled in this environment ah. rather than this kind of regimentation which is associated with things which are completely independent of what I should be doing, you know? Yeah, well, the whole survival issue is part of what I'm fighting for. I mean, really, a world that survival, the, the real issues in life are what am I going to do that's going to be fun or contribute to making the world a better place. Oh, man. You know, this survival shit is crazy. It's just a waste of our intelligence and our energy. and it's But it's all completely know. created as well. I mean, this is the thing that strikes me very strongly, that <laughs> it's just a story. Exactly. It's just a fucking story. Exactly. You know, we could create a different story that would be a hell of a lot better. Yes. Amen. Amen. So, when changing the topic slightly... <laughs> My wife has commented along this line. It's worth talking about because I found myself today experiencing this. When I enter social groups, I am one of two people. <laughs> yes, the other half. I'm either really The worse half. <laughs> I'm either really quite passively easygoing, almost kind of jovial, and I, yeah. or I am really aggressive. <laughs> and I yeah, you got two ways. Depending upon what you had to drink, probably, right? Well, I don't drink, so oh, it's not about okay. that. So this okay. is the interesting phenomenon. What kind I, of situations are How often do, do you find yourself in these kinds of situations? I found, well, so this is the interesting thing. So when I was at the Artificial Life Conference afterwards, when I met this um, Chris Adami fellow who had a negative impact on me, I intentionally went in as passive humorous kind of and, and told him, you know, I wasn't interested in doing science. What I was interested in was philosophical satire and these kind of things, <laughs> because I knew it was going to be, he was going to come at me with aggression. And I, excuse me. And I knew, start. no, I knew that basically I would have to come be the opposite of what he wanted. But I mean, for example, today yeah. 
Today, I was, as I'm frequently thrust into some meeting with a group of people who didn't know me, didn't care about the circumstances, and then the the standard practice, which really comes from early childhood, a lot of this is early childhood programming, where the group was asked to introduce themselves. They got up to two people, and then there was a fellow who liked to talk a lot, and it stopped. The introduction stopped, the descriptions of why people were in the meeting, what their needs were in the Was meeting. anybody running the meeting? No, this is, in, well, you see, this is always my thing. I, I run meetings with military precision. I That's don't right. like long meetings. I like meetings to work through what needs to be worked through. Well, it depends on the meeting. I mean, they are, they're all individually no, different. My view is that well, basically maybe. if meetings go long, it's indicative that basically there probably needs to be either another meeting called or the meeting is just being completely and utterly mismanaged. When meetings go on for twice <laughs> as long as they're supposed to, and don't follow any path, then it's indicative that the meetings are being run poorly. When I, in my previous job, we used to have these meetings that would go on for four plus hours. <laughs> we had a, we had a, a manager who would just <laughs> allow these things to occur. And on one day, she was unwell and I was given the task of running the meeting and the meeting finished in under an hour. This is a, a that long. monthly process meeting. <laughs> Because I cut people off. I wasn't interested in hearing nonsense. Yeah. I just wanted to get yeah. to the, you know, you can what talk about your emotions do? outside yeah. this circumstance. Yeah. We've got something we need to do. Let's get it done. Yeah. Anyway, so I, in this yeah. circumstances I found myself today, we kind of were stopped off. And I actually had things that I needed to raise in the meeting. There were serious points that I needed to make about what was going on. And um, when finally, you know, the fellow who was leading the meeting asked if everyone understood some point, I looked somewhat concerned. And then I just laid it out. I took no prisoners. I really <laughs> yeah. took to task basically the whole principle. Of, and I thought to myself, I have no... And I get into these circumstances. My wife says, when I'm in social groups, I'm typically this way. She says, this is kind of my default social group behavior. You should take over. <laughs> Not to take over necessarily. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, because I met with um, a fellow who I knew when I was in the UK. I worked for Ericsson for a period of time in the UK. And I don't actually, aside from a few small incidents, I don't actually remember that job at all. This was after I'd just come over from the US and <laughs> I worked there for, I worked there for four months. Um, uh, two weeks were in Sweden. A month was in, um, the US and on the East Coast. But I remember very little about that job. And I was talking to him. I said, how did I even get the job? And he said, you came in, you basically scared all the management staff. I came in <laughs> and talked to you. I left saying, there's no way this guy's going to take a job with us. We made you the job offer and you accepted it. And I said, yeah, actually, I remember some of that. But it's funny uh -huh. because it's really like two distinctly different people and the funny thing is my survival instinct <laughs> is angry <laughs> uh -huh. my survival instinct that kicks in in these circumstances basically has to get the job done and is so completely removed from you know what i would consider my you know normal self but it is very well, the question is does it work it does and it's like an out-of-body experience it's like i'm actually watching myself say these things when i'm so it's the worst possible circumstances is get me in a meeting for two plus hours, which does nothing. And then I will particularly, I mean, if I don't know, if I do know the parties and I've worked with the parties, I'll usually just sit you, on my hands. I mean, obviously you're in there. You, 
you have your boss, bosses. I mean, you're talking about business meetings, right? Not just some civic action yes. bullshit. It's, all, it's yeah. almost always business yeah, meetings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that, that takes a lot of balls to just say the truth in a meeting where you haven't already made damn sure you've got your allies. <laughs> well, the thing <laughs> yeah. is, is... Because I would imagine you'd be gone in about... 30 minutes. Oh, no, you see, you've got to understand, you've got to understand the whole alpha nerd phenomena. If you don't understand the alpha nerd phenomena, because most <laughs> nerds want to be beaten on some psychological level, and then they want to be reassured. So what happened after this <laughs> was that we had, we had a, a discussion following, and I went and talked to the... Well, these the, are clearly beta nerds, not alpha, not true alpha true. nerds. Yes, okay. But the thing is that I will control it. So, I mean, obviously, you know, in management structures and what have you, I have to toe the line. But I really do sit on my hands for this. Um, But it is interesting because when I'm in social groups, and my wife has said this because she introduces me to her, the, the folks she's met in this part of the world, I tend to be not necessarily dismissively aggressive, but I will satirize people's behavior <laughs> in front of them without care. Yeah. I just don't care. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not uh, that's not the best way to win friends and influence people. This is the interesting <laughs> thing, though. No, I mean, I think it's actually been remarkably successful because, firstly, people remember me. Yeah. And they, <laughs> they also realize, to a certain extent, that the kind of shit that they're doing is not going to get a good response around me, so they better try different shit. I mean, I think the if they're paying attention, yeah. Oh, right. I, I right. make sure yeah. they pay attention. Yeah. Believe yeah. me, Heron. I mean, yeah. this okay. is the interesting thing because this is really my fun. See, that's what I did. See, for years, yeah. I went out of my way to be as offensive as possible, yeah. and I figured anybody who could get past that is probably somebody I might be interested in spending some time with. Mm. <laughs> you know, and it worked great. I think also it's becoming more. It's becoming more with age. I mean, I think there was a period of time. Actually, my wife tells stories of when we first started dating, but a lot of that was. Um, it was just a strange period in my life, and now I've kind of you know now I'm slightly older. I realise that. Control- How old are you now? Uh, I'm thirty-six. Oh God! What an old fart! I know, Harold. Oh, I know. Man. Okay. Thank God I'm going to the gym, you know. If I wasn't going to the gym, yeah, I'd that's be, smart. Yeah. That's really smart. Man. <laughs> Keep that up. It's funny, actually. I really, aside from the mirrors, I really have a relatively strong aversion to looking at myself as I'm working out, and they are just all many There's no need to. Oh, it's, you're doing it at the gym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, the, I kind of like the gym. The the mirrors weren't a problem for me because where I worked out, I, they weren't around. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I tend to find yeah. myself working out by windows. But then again, you know, you you have this whole thing associated with you know working out of, over an appropriate window. So you know the tennis courts are good, but you know the young girls' swimming window. You probably don't want to be working out in front of them. I mean, there are all these kind of social norms that, you know, <laughs> work into where one works out as well. The thing, the yeah, thing, but you don't have to pay those. That's the beauty of yeah, it. Because it's just bullshit. You can go right there and do any damn thing you want to. I guess and, you can. Yeah. But according, I mean, it's having certainly in terms of both my upper and lower torso having a very good effect on me. So, yeah. Well, that pretty much takes care of it. Now all you got to worry about is your brain. <laughs> <laughs> you got your upper and your lower torso. So. <laughs> yeah, I've always been worried about the brain part, but anyway, anyway. So, 
through the week, I framed and contacted a fellow called, gosh, oh, David Van Eyes, that's his full name, uh, but he's known as Dr. Dave in podcasting circles. And he has been running for, I guess, the past seven or eight years, a psychology podcast. Mm-hmm. And he lives, I don't know, in the North San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, so I contacted him this week with the express purpose of getting in contact with uh, PTSD psychology folk to, you know, offer some yeah. initial yeah. discussion to our often talked about topic associated with getting a, I don't know, some some form of the stupidities in front of folks returning service folk. Uh, and I got a very nice response back from him, which basically said, search through uh, the Shrink Rap Radio website uh, and, you know, find folk that interest you through that. I think there was a little bit of confusion because I referred to my friends who were doing VR PTSD work and he pointed me to someone who he'd interviewed who'd done VR PTSD work. But certainly on his site, I was able to find, I think, four academics uh, that were doing various aspects of PTSD work um, that could yeah. certainly provide some insight. And this fellow had the benefit that I think he was in, was it UC San Diego or some, some somewhere in Southern California? So, returning to this topic, I mean, I I don't want to feel that I'm, you know, leading you to anything, but have you thought any more through the week about our general discussion associated? Oh, yeah, I'm fascinated by the whole thing, you know, I mean, and, and, uh, and I just, I have nothing but questions to begin with, you know, I mean, I, I know nothing about it, so... But I think it's, it's a perfect example of where this stuff might help. Um, so I, the first thing is I, I would need some experience in this. You know, there, there may be groups of people that meet that have, you know, like, uh, like, I don't know. Anyway, it'd be interesting to talk to somebody who's been diagnosed with it. Certainly. And I think, you know, and see what they think about it. So you go to, you go to the VA hospital occasionally, don't you? I mean, you have some. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there. yeah. So that would be a place that you could ask. Oh, you're right. What a great idea! Thank you. <laughs> that, see, it's so fucking obvious. Where? What better place? <laughs> and actually, I have an appointment coming up on April the third. Very good. I mean, so this is this is kind of motivating ABC. Thank you. Kind of Thank you. See, th- that's why people should listen to this podcast. Because even the people who are here can learn something. <laughs> yes, very much so, very much so. But I'm sure through that there must be groups that meet that you could, you know, attend. Well, you know, I'd I'd almost rather, you know, I mean, if I was really going to get serious about this, what I'd probably rather do before meeting any experts is talk to a bunch of people who think they have. Uh, this is my point. I mean, this is what the VA hospital yeah. would point you yeah. towards. But I mean, but they're going to look at me as who the hell is this guy? You know, I mean, my sense is, and maybe I'm completely wrong because I've never walked into a VA hospital. Yeah, that there should be information that would lend itself to groups anyway. I mean, there should just be passive information that you could pick up that would point you towards groups. Surely. Or oh yeah, have to be yeah. diagnosed. I mean, I, I don't get the sense of kind of clinicalness associated with this, but I would assume yeah. just passively one would hope that this information would be available. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking so too, but I'm also thinking that. If I was running these programs, I wouldn't, I'd make damn sure that the people are in there who are there, you know, that it's, that there aren't people like me showing up, <laughs> you know, with agendas and stuff. 
Charlie of a bit. Yeah, no, I mean, one would consider PTSD. No, that's a therapeutic environment, and that's a protected environment. I at least that's the way I take it. Well, would you think Alcoholics Anonymous is like that? Um. No, but that's that's a whole different thing, you know. You're, you're right. In a sense, I think it is, and I think it should be, but uh, it's not quite the same with when you're dealing with the federal government. <laughs> well, I mean, but the federal government, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any experience of the VI hospital system, but I would assume that the... Um, well, it's bureaucratic. I mean, that's yeah. the main thing, you know, is trying to find out who's going to accept authority if, or responsibility for making a decision about something that doesn't show up in their book somewhere. <laughs> you know, okay. it turns into a, a nightmare, and it's not anything I'm interested in playing. I mean, one would assume, and I've done no research to this account either, but I mean, one would assume that there may be online. I mean, what you're looking for no, is you're right. the potential for podcast recordings yeah. and a wide variety of things. Yeah, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, right you never that. know if the thousand or so listeners to this particular podcast, there may be someone who, is, who has yeah. returned from the military who may be applicable with. I've got another topic to cover along these lines yeah. shortly, yeah. too. But yeah. I mean, I think there's certainly a community of folk out there i mean ah uh, that would be fascinating yes yeah that would be fascinating well that's i mean the more you say that the more i think that that could be fascinating <laughs> and you think it's likely we could get some pe- how would you do this physically said i mean we do it through uh team speak how skype. i mean I, I would skype think, okay i would think um you know i mean in terms of the stuff that you get through I, I don't know. It's too, Does it make a difference? I guess it doesn't. Radio still existing. I mean, these kind of these kind of the kind of places where you'd find these kind of people anyway. I would think. Well, well, no. I'm just looking at Teamspeak as just the method for doing it. The, yeah, the, the real issue is how do we find the people and get the people there. Mm. I mean, I would think. I mean, you've been relatively successful with Skype, but you probably. I mean, I'm sure there are groups either through Facebook or these kind of things to, to that are partly. Ah, well, you yeah, could start a Facebook group. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, the, the success I've been able to get in terms of finding Black Panthers from the 1960s so you, and 70s, so, yeah. I would think, you know, you could find people with PTSD. So what is it that you want? Actually, you know, you should just be my manager on this project. <laughs> I thought about it's not, that. It's not really quite clear to me just exactly what, what it is we're doing here. And, well, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's, it's, it's a real interesting idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's a, a clearly defined mark or market, <laughs> a clearly defined group. group of people. Yeah. And that's, you know, I was gonna. I would really love to just talk to some people because I'm. I'm thinking this is all a bunch of psycho babble. You know, there's something going on for sure. But the way, whatever way they're thinking about it, is probably way off the mark. And that's the nature of Gendo, right? In terms yeah. of actually yeah. providing some kind. Let's of... Let's provide some real rigorous use of language yes. in, in talking about this problem. Yes. What is it that you are actually experiencing? What, what what was it like before? How do you know? You know, there's just all there's just a whole long conversation there. Uh, how do you carry out your day to day life? I mean, how do you actually approach problems, and how do you you frame yeah. them linguistically? And what does this cause? What what are the problems that come through your well, linguistic there's a, there's, there's a bunch of questions, and what I've found. See, this is why I find writing difficult because we're one on one interactions. It really is one on one. I make it up for each ind- each person I'm talking with. 
because as I as I talk to them, I find out what makes sense to them, how they're thinking about it, what's wrong with how they're thinking about it, what kinds of ideas they might accept or not accept. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on that lets me tailor the whole thing directly to this person. When you try to write something or come up with some formula that's going to work, I haven't found anything that works. Yes. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> Although I realize, see, that's really what I'm working on. What I'm working on is some not quite foolproof, but almost like a, a paragraph of text in English, maybe a couple hundred words, maybe such written such that anybody who reads it and actually comprehends it will at that moment be liberated from the trance of language. Now, maybe it won't work for a hundred percent of people. Maybe it'll only work for 10% of people or 2%. I don't know, or maybe even more, but that's what I'm, my quest is to write that paragraph. And the methods that you have used to date, have been very heavily focused on the folks that you interact with that don't have any right well may in some regard but don't have the kind of don't have any knowledge of any of this certainly. stuff yeah right that's crucial yeah linguists are the last person <laughs> last people i want to talk to <laughs> about this oh that would be a different conversation i'd love to talk to linguists but that would be a whole different conversation in my own thinking as your manager I have come to the conclusion that linguists are the last people that you should speak to and yeah. basically remove my sense that contacting linguists and putting them in contact yeah. with you are going to be well, specific linguists might be maybe maybe you know but yeah. as a, as a general rule they've already got they already know everything <laughs> so well they already think that so well, that's yeah. what I'm saying yeah they they already know they're the experts they know everything and uh, if it's if this doesn't fit with their system then it's bullshit but that's not true for everybody in academia, just just most of them. <laughs> so, let's start with framing a Facebook group. On PTSD? Yes. Okay, yeah. So, oh, then clearly, it, at this point, all it is is a for, an invitation to a, for, a place to talk mm -hmm. with me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I could go for that. Okay, so that's an easy Facebook group to create. Yeah, you're right. The, okay. The, the question is, how do they do it? So that's, the other the other point is that there may be these Facebook groups already created. That's true. So we are presupposing easy that they to do a exist. search for PTSD. Exactly. <laughs> Have you done that? No, I haven't. I haven't done any of this exploration. What I'm doing is laying it out Please, with you. With but, the listen, users. if you're my manager, get the fucking work. <laughs> <laughs> And so it began, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Veterans PTSD Project, Massachusetts Community Organizations, 14,000 people and 666, quite ironically, are uh, talking about it. <laughs> okay. PTSD, all wounds are not visible. Let me just open these selectively. Yeah. This is exactly okay. where you need to be. This is, yeah, right. You're, you're, okay. PTSD, uh, all wounds are not visible. PTSD, survivors of America. Okay, so all we have to do is write the invitation. 
And for some reason, Facebook isn't opening them sequentially. Okay, uh, let me try this again, and let me try this again. I found Facebook, I don't know what's going on, but it's like, it just hangs up all the time. It's not that it's hanging up, it's that I actually want a new page. No, but have you noticed that? Uh, here's, here's a secret that most people don't know about Facebook. Facebook's actually come and talked at Netflix about how they do their stuff. What they do is that they release, they are basically probably one of the most chaotic source release mechanisms <laughs> oh, out there. They Not push magic. everything live quickly, and then they just tweak dials to move you in and out of, of the latest code. So okay. what you see with Facebook is not... Um, so you're in between refreshes, is is that... Or, no, what I'm or, trying to do is get individual pages for each of these pages, yeah. and I'm doing the standard clicks oh, to I do see, that, yeah, but it's yeah. not actually letting me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's actually not even... I mean, it's clear that there's already a, a bunch of people there. There's already an audience. It's there, uh, and all we got to do is just write a little letter, yes. a little essay, and invite them to come and, and talk. yes. <laughs> so actually what's interesting here is it's a combination of husbands and wives on the first one I'm looking at, which is PTSD mm -hmm. Survivors of America. Mm, okay. Military with PTSD. This is very deep here, Heron. You can find a lot of information. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Military with PTSD uh, looks like it's a close... No, it's not a close group. So and what about kids? I mean, like kids who grow up in the ghetto. Yeah, you know, there are a lot, there's a whole bunch of stuff about, you know, the trauma of, yes. of, uh, being so, ghettoized. Do you, do you understand? I've watched a series of documentaries which have just left me absolutely cold cocked associated with <laughs> the whole. So families would not get welfare if there was a man in the house. <laughs> so they had these curious. It was associated. It was a discussion associated with the Chicago ghettos, um, that were built and then bulldozed. But families would not get money if there was a man in the house. So they were living in poverty, and there was this strange distinction associated with losing food stamps as soon as you earned enough to, you know, uh, yeah, and to spend of, all your money on food. It's it's really <laughs> very <laughs> astonishing the whole phenomena associated with ghetto psychology oh, in yeah, this country. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we've uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us, don't we? We do. But yeah, <laughs> I think that is all. That is probably an even bigger project than PTSD. <laughs> But it's not really of a different kind, though. That's in a sense. It's really uh, PTSD today, tomorrow, the world. Yes. Because really, again, I, you know, I keep looking at this, and I just don't see a simpler take that that all we really have is our stories. I don't. I've never tested whether there are atoms. <laughs> You know, I mean, for molecules or any of this shit. All this stuff is a story to me. Yes. You know, it, and, it, and to the people who actually do know, it, it's tied in with handling behaviors and all sorts of very complex things. It, it's a whole different kind of universe. All we have is our stories. Yes. And that's such a different universe than thinking you know what reality really is. So, Veterans PTSD Project. A mother of a U.S. Yeah. Marine contacted one of our members today. Her son was very close to some of the young U.S. Marines that died this week in an accident. What info can we give her to help her son get through this mental and, and mentally and emotionally? Uh, what's some other examples from this? Uh, 
Hi, I'm new to this page. I grew up an army brat and I have some concerns. I was wondering if you guys would help me. I have a neighbor. We are the only ones out where we live. We're the only ones who uh, he really talks to. He has served in the military. I'm not sure of combat, though he does have some really off-the-wall things. And growing up in the military, I know the civilian norm is not our normal, but he is different and extremely paranoid, and uh, that is during the day. At night, he's up all night and doesn't sleep outside. Uh, oh, and he sleeps out. He doesn't sleep outside with red spot. Anyway, it goes on. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Ah, so they have. So this is serious shit going down here. We got. Yeah. yeah wow, right. talk radio. They have. They already have a talk radio. Voiceofwarriors. dot com. So they have a talk radio okay. thing that they have set up. All right. So this is an a, an established market. Veterans PTSD. Already. Well, yeah. it's not a. It, it's an existing group of people. I don't think there's any linguistic analysis going on amongst these groups, though. No, but I mean, the, the people interested in PTSD are out there and they're organized and they're talking to one another. And uh, it'd be relatively easy to put a, a new idea into that community. Certainly. You know, that's, and th- they that's, are, that's they nice. are, they number in the thousands. Yeah. The tens yeah. Of thousands. Yeah. 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 So the, the only issue then is what is the message and, and what is their response? Well, you are a veteran, and you would like to talk with them. <laughs> I'm a veteran. Well, you are, Aaron. That's, that's, <laughs> I can't get into this community. I don't have the street cred. You know? <laughs> well, you're right. No, it certainly doesn't hurt. And I was in Vietnam, so it's not just that I'm a veteran. I was actually in the fucking war, man. There were certainly. bombs blowing up around me. Oh, man. <laughs> I got some cred here. You do. Yeah, yeah so, 40 years of reading books on linguistics isn't worth anything, but, <laughs> you know, he's a veteran, so listen up, folks. Come on, Heron. Utilize what you have. I mean, you've got a little bit to Well, that, that's all, again, that's all marketing bullshit, and I don't really care about that. The issue is, what do, what do we write? What do we actually write? What do we put out there? I mean, these are text well, I forums. Think, I think what, so, you, you know, what you do, which is exactly right, is you listen initially. And whether you need to listen to 10, 20, oh, 50, yeah, okay, or 100, right. yeah, you yeah. need to basically get okay, so in the I need to make a commitment to do something about this. That's the subtle point of our yeah, discussions well, recently. Well, no, that's, well, you should just come right out and say it because I'm not, I'm certainly not ready to make a commitment to this. But, but it's getting interesting. I'll tell you. <laughs> well, whenever you're ready, Heron. Yeah, they're well, out there. Yeah, well, it's, it, is that is that really the only way out? Do I actually have to listen to a bunch of this shit or observe all these things myself? Well, the whole point about framing it specifically for a group—I mean, the you, marketing. You mean to market it? I guess. I mean, but you well, ultimately, you've got to create it and you've got to frame it. Yeah. Well, I know that's what I'm saying. Is creating it and framing it is marketing it the way it's framed is the way it's presented to people yes you know i feel uncomfortable about the m word but it's exactly what you have to do here yeah but i mean but see i think it's really important to deal with it clearly that that's what we're talking about because because that's what we're talking about and i don't i don't know anything about that space i'm not a marketer well except all i know is what i want to do is uh get one-on-one with some of these people with ptsd and i want to talk with them yes that's what I want to do. How how that comes about, I don't really give a shit. <laughs> if you know how to get people to get on the phone with me, that's what I want. Okay. Well, I 
I can be your agent in these circumstances here, Harry. Well, we'll work, we'll work this out. You know, yes. we'll, 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 this is all new. Like I say, this this year is going to be real fascinating. <laughs> you know, who knows what the hell is going to happen this year? Yes, not me. Amen. Amen. Gosh, it's really quite overwhelming, Harold, to look at it all is. these Facebook groups associated with PTSD. Th- this is. Really, the internet did save my life. I was a hermit. I was on my way to being uh, just a lonely, sort of gruntled, no, disgruntled, <laughs> disgruntled. an ungruntled, ungruntled. Uh, ungruntled, lonely old man in a hotel room somewhere. Mm. Um, if it hadn't been for the internet, you know? It's, it's, it's been a miracle. I mean, really, there are hundreds of people. I don't, they're not all close friends, but, but, you know, there are tens of people that I talk to fairly regularly. Regularly. <laughs> uh oh. Welcome to the alcohol, folks. <laughs> Say elementary. Elementary was the last one. Elementary. That's easy. No, regularly. That's a tougher one. That's a better test, actually. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. regularly. Regularly. All right. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, this notion of marketing. I mean, I uh, last weekend, and actually through the week as well, because I got this fellow's uh, mentor to talk at Netflix, but I, I caught up with a fellow who I see periodically, maybe every three, four years, although I'm going to be seeing him more frequently. And his life has been, his professional life, has been associated with this programming language called Erlang. Mm-hmm. And he has a... Erlang? I'm not familiar with that. Erlang was a language that was pioneered by a fellow called Joe Armstrong, who came and talked to Netflix. <laughs> well, it must be a good language. Well, it's funny because he's a Brit. <laughs> he's a Brit who basically, as soon as he'd... I don't know, his first job was in Sweden. So he's a Brit who's lived in Sweden for the past 30, maybe 40 years. And he's one of these British academics that you no longer see because they all... You know, they all got, um, I don't know what the term would be. They were either told that they had to change their behavior or they left <laughs> academia. So he's, he's pretty rough around the edges, kind of British academic who's lived in Sweden for the past however uh, many years. But he's not my friend. I've met him once. Well, actually, I've met him a few times before, but I only really remember meeting him once before. My friend, however, I got on with quite well when I was at Ericsson because I don't know how old he is. I'm assuming we're roughly the same age, maybe slightly older. Um, and he let me stay in his family home, which was really basically a studio overlooking whatever the river is in Stockholm and these kind of things. And we spent a lot of time together because we were both effectively single men. I mean, my fiance was, um, in the US, now my wife and his girlfriend at the time was, I guess, down in London, but he lived in Leicester for most of the time. Uh, that he was consulting for Ericsson. So he and I catch up periodically. Last time we caught up was in Vegas maybe four years ago, and he pitched me very heavily. In fact, it was around the time, actually, that we were doing these recordings. There's a recording out there with me talking about it. He pitched me very heavily on making Noble Ape into an open-source project, as he had made Erlang into. And for him, it's just a gravy train. I mean, he runs, I don't know, maybe 20 people who go and do training with this language, and they're all, you know, it's all serious stuff. I mean, he was doing... Chrysler and various other places when he was here last time, and it's now Facebook, LinkedIn. You know, there's some people and it's at called, Apple. What's it called? E R L A N G Erlang. E R. Okay. I was thinking U R. No, no, I was thinking. no. It's E R L A N G. Um, and anyway, and he's got a Facebook page. Uh, well, Wikipedia is the start. It also okay. introduces okay. Joe Armstrong. 
But it strikes me that my friendship with him, because I consider it, I don't know Erlang. I went out of my way when I was at Ericsson not to learn Erlang. I was working on a C compiler. Is it a, what, okay, this is a, a computer language. Yeah, it's a functional it's not, programming It's not language. a speaking language. No, it's not like speaking language. Earthling or anything. No, it's used for basically um, programming vastly, like, you know, telephone switches that handle 20 million transactions. I mean, very powerful telephone and now internet infrastructure goes through this. And it's designed to be... Uh, a series of properties which are immaterial. Okay, this to, is all, yeah, I, yeah. I'm looking at the site and this is just like, obviously, as, yeah. Not, yeah, it's not my domain. Anyway, <laughs> the thing that strikes me is that I've tried to maintain a friendship with this fellow, but all his time is invested into marketing. It's all invested into getting new contacts and what have you. So oh, I, I know, yeah, yeah. I had Tim and his mentor at Netflix this week. So we went, we were going out to lunch, uh, breakfast, actually, with my wife and his partner, and he brought along two people from the conference, one of his consultants and his wife. So my wife and I waited for about an hour at the place, the local breakfast place that we go to periodically, for him and his posse to turn up. And then they turned up, and they just talked business. And I tried to instigate, so I talked to him about, you know, how was I actually recruited, all this kind of stuff, because I, I have very limited memory of my time at Ericsson. And then when he came to Netflix, basically, he and I didn't talk at all. I spent most of the time talking to this academic fellow, who was very nice, and I got along with previously, and I think he remembered that we had met previously, and certainly through his talk... It was in, I don't know, a theatre with maybe 150 people in it. He used me as a visual cue throughout the talk because my friend, his, I don't know, chauffeur, whatever, the fellow who basically organised all the talks, was facing his laptop the whole time. And it struck me that, you know, the quality of my friendships and the people that I consider friends are very curious in and of themselves. <laughs> it made me really wonder, so... As you may recall, last week we were talking about the sources of DMT in our mutual lives, and I made reference to this one fellow who had no interest in me, who's friends with Bruce Damer. Well, it just so happens that he has an iPhone app. Just so happens, talking to Bruce Damer, that I was able to explain some problems that he'd been having with the iPhone app and how he could fix them. Within half an hour of Bruce Damer and me having lunch, Bruce had called him, and <laughs> now and mysteriously <laughs> we're you know all connected again. It's all happening, Tom. You know, it's just right. like it's amazing the utility. I, mean, I guess the point of this is the utility uh-huh. of friendship, and really, yeah. I'm yeah, knowing cynical. the right people. <laughs> so this is the marketing part that I'm well, just that's completely the, that's cynical the whole about. game. That's yes. the whole game is people. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> there isn't anything else. It is so, so curious. This strange thing that we monkeys have gotten ourselves into. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> well, it's beyond our, all of our categories. That's the thing is our categories of language are simply inadequate. They're, they're based on our ancestors' evaluations and life situations. And we're only now beginning to even look at language as something that might be worth looking at. Hmm. <laughs> and what we're finding, at least what I found, is that, damn right, there's some stuff worth looking at here. The interesting phenomenon with language, however, is that we are no longer as constrictively controlled through language as we once may have been. I mean, I think, the, let me frame this before you begin. 
<laughs> All right. If I'm going to argue against something, I might as well at least hear what the hell I'm arguing. Well, let, let me frame this. So certainly <laughs> my parents and my grandparents' generation were taught language completely differently to, to my generation and you were my parents' generation. No, no, not at all. That's exactly the point. I'm, I'm not, we're not talking about language you learned in school. We're talking about the way people in the first three years learn language. But the structure element of language and the ability of language, the formalization of language and the formalization of correct tenses. And yeah, that all is taught without schooling at all. There are plenty of illiterate cultures who have more complex grammars than English. And there's, and there's no schooling. Nobody teaches them anything. Mm. They pick it up. They so pick up what's really going on. Not not what people say is going on, but what's actually going on. Well, this is your hope, at least. Well, no, it's true. I don't think there's any way around it. They don't have language to begin with, so the only thing they can do is take what's there. So, hold it. This is a primary truth associated with Heronstone. Let's, oh, let's that's a good this. one. I, yeah, that's a good one. I never thought of that let's before. Let's rewind this. This cannot be the case. Let's explore no, no. it and let uh, you correct yourself. Um, no, you're right. That's bullshit. That's just way too simple. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We oh, won't need to dive yeah. into this one. Yeah. No. I guess what I'm saying is that when I converse with my grandmother, or when I was at the point of conversing with my grandmother, and we are talking maybe two, four years ago, she would constantly correct my. English. <laughs> really? To the How point old, where this is when you were 35 years yeah, old. Yeah, right? no, this is exactly right. To the point where we it made it difficult to communicate on deeper topics. And my well, no, view no. Is, well, she's not, she doesn't want to do that. Exactly. No. Exactly what she doesn't want to do. This, That's so this is my point. My point is that, but her degree of pedantry is indicative of her generation. Yeah, I, I'm one of those pedants, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I really mourn the loss of the subjunctive, <laughs> you know. But you're not fighting for it. You're not in the trenches. You're not correcting no, my language. No, it's not. Well, you can't because, because that's, that doesn't work. That's a waste of time. Well, All you can do is use language well. So I think about... So my parents, my mother... I don't think my father learnt Latin, but my mother learnt Latin. Okay. And her parents learnt Latin, and they applied, you know, Latin knowledge yeah. to d discussions associated with English. I had four years of Latin. Very I went good. To all boys Catholic high school. Very good, Heron. <laughs> so you were of the same. Yeah, I never took Latin. Funnily enough, um, I had friends that did Latin. Um, yeah, a few of them became linguists. Well, what's so interesting? One of the most interesting thing is that word order is irrelevant in Latin. So as a poet, it just totally frees you. Because the, the wherever you place a word, I mean, it, it, there's some bearing, but for the most part, uh, all these words have markers that determine whether the object or whatever, and you can put them anywhere in the sentence, and everybody knows what's what. So that's a fascinating. I mean, when I first realized that, I, that just blew me away. You know, that word order becomes a poetic choice, not just a grammatic restriction. So how does that work associated with nouns, verbs, and adjectives? Do they not exist in the same relationships? In well, nouns can be, I mean, they have um, 
I don't remember, suffixes, uh, for whether it's the, whether it's the subject of the sentence, the object of a sentence, an indirect object of a sentence. So it could be labe mas, labe mus, labe mar, or something. And that ending tells you that it's the object, not the subject. So if it's the man bites the dog, it doesn't really make, and is, the, it doesn't make any difference where you put those words, but dog is man, or bite man dog. It doesn't make any difference what order you put it in, because the meaning is contained in those, um, those uh, suffixes. To hear Latin spoken with an American accent, <laughs> I'm sorry. I I, I thought with a Texas said, accent, right? But my, yes, exactly. <laughs> this is this is this is mind blowing for me, Aaron. You do not understand <laughs> to hear Latin spoken with an American yeah. accent. Yeah, yeah. That is a thing of beauty. Well, but then there is no other way except, uh, yeah, with a French accent or whatever. I don't think I think the original accent is gone now. So. Yeah, there's a, yeah, Latin. God, four years of that. I don't remember anything except, you know, Vaini Vidi Vici <laughs> and a Moa Masa Mott. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> so the high school before, while I still had some semblance of Latin as worthy, had the, um, what was it? Nunc Tempus Adeste, which translates to now is the time to destroy. Because <laughs> they got the word learn wrong, apparently, or something like that. It was it was always very curious to me. And then, of course, they couldn't put it in Latin anymore because it was meaningless to people. And I think they changed it to a picture of a unicorn because that made more sense than Latin, I guess. My mother actually waged war with um, my school associated with teaching Latin. She mm-hmm. would write these long treaties that I now own. Uh, what she didn't want, what she wanted Latin or she, she wanted didn't Latin. Want. She wanted yeah. Latin. Yeah. Because it was, I mean, I did French bitterly. Typical elitist point of view. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to my life, Heron. Take a number. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. And they ought to have opera too, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. It's funny actually, because my wife gravitates to kind of pops classical music and I gravitate to you know, not opera, but, you know, kind Real of... Real classical music. Yeah, you know, the stuff you listen to. Yeah, good music. <laughs> <laughs> music is, that is worth your while, that feeds you. Yes. It is interesting because she's... We'll be driving and she'll change the station from the classical music that I listen to to the classical music that she listens to. And she'll tell oh, wait a minute, what does that mean? The classical music she listens. She you're, listens. you're being facetious here. No, she listens to, you know, Pop's classical Pockle music. Paco Bell Cannon, right? Yes. There's, you know, <laughs> there's a distinction on our on our radio there's a distinction of one number between <laughs> the Pops. Which can quickly go into Indiana Jones themes and things like well, that. Well those can be very good though. That's, that's and, gonna be wonderful. You know. Yeah, yeah. Rums, well, know, it's just it's just the Pockle Bell Cannon that if I hear yeah. one more time in my life, I well, luckily I don't I I don't hear it. I haven't Pretty heard good. it in a long Pretty time. Good. Yeah, no, it's they're going to remix it into a rap song very soon. So. <laughs> You'll just hear segments of it. But it is so she times the length of time before I realize that she's changed the music, and this is like an ongoing joke. And it's funny; it, it typically takes me between thirty seconds to a minute. But it is that length of time. 
It's funny because I think in terms of, you know, the next generation and the generate, I mean, it's not even the next generation. We've, we've had this discussion associated with three generations. So I'm not going to labor that again. Yeah. But yeah. It's going to take a while. <laughs> I, I do, I do wonder because I am, I am a collection of some of the elements of my parents' interests and some additional interests. Mm-hmm. And my view is that. And more of the culture too, not just your parents. I mean, your whole culture. Hmm. All your relatives and friends and everything you ever saw on TV. And- no, I pretty well kicked all of that. I mean, I'm I'm pretty... It's interesting because there are certain things that really impacted on me and there are a large set of things that really had no impact on me. Okay. Yeah. And I certainly, with regards to television, my wife is astonished. I associate with my kind of finite breadth of knowledge in certain areas and then my depth of knowledge in other areas. But yeah. it is a it is a strange thing. I, it's a point that I make to my coworkers frequently that we actually have choices associated with what we choose to consume. <laughs> yes, really. You don't actually have to go home and watch TV. The problem <laughs> what is what a concept. The problem is that Netflix now produces television. Yeah. <laughs> so my coworkers will watch whatever Netflix is producing, and I take extreme exception to that. I mean, I really my view is that, and I get a lot of compliments associated with what Netflix is producing. And if people want to watch it, I have no problem with it. And I, you know, obviously, well, this is, you only like, have so many minutes per day to spend your time. Point. Yes, this is my yeah. view that basically my so you know when they ask about it, I say you know I'm working on this comic book project to talk about the comic book project, or I say I talk to this crazy futurist linguist guy in LA every Friday night and that yeah. takes a good portion of my time. And you know, all these kind of bits yeah. and pieces. Yeah, right. And yeah. so, you know, I can I can wheel out a number of my projects before I have to get to model rail radio. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know how you manage to do everything you do. I mean i I'm I'm really sort of in awe. But then I think you're you're probably just going to explode sometime. There's going to be a bunch of goo on the other end here. Oh, it's, it, it's closer. It's closer than you think, Karen. This is why I'm recording these things. I think. Really, I just I'm just really. Like I say, I, I, it's all I can do to keep myself together. Working two days a week, <laughs> drinking my wine and talking to you, yeah. you know, and uh, keeping up my Facebook page and trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do with my life. Yeah, you know, to, to work an actual, how many hours a week do you work? It's funny because I was listening to our discussion doing this maybe two years ago. I, I work less now than I did in Las Vegas. Oh, but the thing about Las Vegas was, well, I do work weekends with this job and these kind of things. I mean, there are bits and pieces, but yeah. the thing with Las Vegas was you had to be in at work at eight o'clock. And my view is that there was nothing really productive. I would typically drink a pint of water review all the code that came through, but there was nothing really productive and review email because we were an international yeah, company. Yeah. But really the first hour of the day, and now I get in and typically I'm the first person in the office for at least the first maybe 10, half an hour, 10 minutes to half an hour. And then, you know, my boss will get in and then periodically people will come in. But I now, I mean, I would used to work until six at this job. And now particularly because of the, on the gym days, I won't do that. And Friday's a non-gym day and I, I can't see much benefited sticking around and certainly most people start leaving at around four yeah. um so it's different hours it's far well, more intense in terms of the nature of the work well far yeah. more focused but yes it is it is fewer hours in some like, regard 
Yeah, I would much. Pre- I I don't mind intensity. In fact, I prefer that. Let's let's if we're gonna work, let's get the fucking job done and then get the hell out of here. Mm. I mean, I get a sense that I probably work roughly the same number of hours as my peers. I mean, there are people that come in later and probably work considerably later. Yeah, there are still people there when you leave. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I will stay until. I mean, you know, the latest probably I've stayed at this job has been about nine thirty. I might have done that. You could count it on maybe one hand maybe two hands yeah um but yeah i mean typically the thing that really drains me is working over weekends and with this job i have had and over some sections i've had multiple weekends that i've worked over thankfully some of these issues have been resolved and that won't be a kind of continued format i don't think i don't mind you know working working on a one day a weekend occasionally yeah you know i mean they Aaron, they pay me an obscene amount of money. I mean, yeah, that's be... the thing is that's really the game you're playing. You know, yeah. you, you don't, you're not going to be playing it forever. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and uh, for right now, yeah. it's a good gig. So the remaining time that I have, I devote. I mean, you don't have any time to stare at the wall. No, I do actually. I mean, really? I spend. Oh, good for you. I spend. I spend probably between an hour to two hours with my wife doing stuff that we do together, um, reading, talking, we watch a bit of television. This gym thing is very good. We do that together. Yeah. Um, We have the evenings. I mean, we both have our own projects that we work on. I mean, my wife, basically, I'm I'm looking at our double bed here covered with five quilts that she's made in the past year. She's a prolific quilter and Mm. she does, you know, she does a lot of other stuff as well. Um, and I think she's very interested in a lot of my projects. I mean, this comic book stuff she's very interested in, and she's certainly, I mean, Model Rail Radio is a phenomenon that she's been <laughs> very accommodating with. I mean, it's, um, it's really quite extraordinary. But I think the thing that struck me when I met my wife was that she was a woman of projects. I mean, she was someone who had her own life, had her own and goals. Does stuff. And, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Because up until, I mean, I used to, most of the, People I dated prior to my wife had been artists. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. People who've got stuff to do. Yeah, but the artist phenomena is slightly different. I mean, the when you frame... This is interesting. This is part of the whole recruiting of comic book artists because they are of a different temperament. I mean, my wife is very good at drawing and designed the logo for Model Rail Radio and designed logos for me previously. But she's not the kind of archetypical artist that I've, you know, dated and worked with previously. Um, yeah. and yeah, I think it's actually quite interesting because I, after, you know, two or three of these relationships, I realized that I probably had a defined type that was causing the defined problems. And had yeah, to right. Yeah. That, you, you the, what you called an artist <laughs> and what they called an artist. Was, yeah. yeah. I know, I know that type. I've been involved with them. So, too. Yeah. They're yeah. very charismatic. At, yeah. or, there are many things, but yeah. you know. Not anything you'd want to be around a whole lot. Yeah, emotionally stable in the long term, maybe (laughs) not so much. Not so much. We've probably lost half a dozen artist listeners to this commentary, but anyway. Well, I think that's a good thing. It's just not someone you want to get in a relationship with. I think this... That doesn't invalidate their choices for their life. No, my view is that there are probably people that they could date that, you know... would Or not. You know, I mean, the whole idea of, of... that finding somebody to pair up with is the be all and end all of life, you know, is something that, well, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, there's more than that. Clearly. 
we've we've discussed this previously. Yeah. So yes, it's well, but the, it's it, the thing is that's not the way it's presented to young, you know, pubescent teens. You know, young female. Well, or males. I mean, everybody expects to get married and have kids. And if they don't do that, then somehow there's, they failed. But I think the cells, well, the whole, but there's different programming. I mean, there's different kinds of programming they're hearing. It's oh, there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole bunch of other stuff too. Yeah. yeah, specific to each one. But I'm just saying this whole idea that really that's what life is about is about a man and a woman getting together and kissing. I mean, that's how, you know, move. I mean, everything is about that. That that's it. That's what make that justifies everything. <laughs> I don't know. I think there are broader concepts in this society. I think oh, there are. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying is that the, the the sort of ham-fisted version that kids get uh, is that that's sort of what that was what I was brought up to believe. We have a volunteer military in this country, Heron. I mean, part of that. The whole notion of the, no, you need to. I think there needs to be really strong militaristic narratives in there as well. There needs to be almost anti-family and what have you in part because you know these young men and now young women have to put themselves into these. Well, well it's not so much anti as they should just realize that uh, the view they were given was one way of thinking about it, and there are a number of other ways. And if you'd like to explore what those are, they're all available in the Wikipedia. Not all of them, but a good number. Of them. Well, damn, a good—you can get a good start there. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get you started. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Not all, you know. How what a silly thing. See, my language machine is obviously deeply in need of rehabilitation. Amen. Yeah. Amen. You know, actually, I can't say regularly, normally. So, actually, I, I'm I'm not feeling much. But I think it's the fourth one that does it. We'll see. Yeah. I can never walk in a straight line either. I mean, all the sobriety tests that are yeah, used in this yeah. country are just <laughs> yeah, useless. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Say the nobody can backwards. say regularly. I mean, can, can you say regularly? Regularly, regularly, yeah. regularly. Okay, yeah. Uh, show off. Okay, what, good for you. What was it? <laughs> Robert E. Lee regularly. Robert E. Lee regularly. You've got to find a series of words that don't yeah, work together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about the person who sells seashells by the seashore. Yes. Anyway, so do you have a topic for us this evening? No, no, I'm totally uh, passive. I'll just uh, bring up something and I'll argue so against it. So you put up the photos <laughs> of your dogs recently or your adopted yeah, dogs. Yeah, yeah. What's stopping you from just getting another pet? Oh, um, I don't want to be responsible for anybody but me you know i can get you a cat very quickly here yeah i know you can i don't i don't want a cat uh if you know there are cats there's a in fact there's a feral cat around here i could probably make friends with you know, that would be more fun and i and i got my crows you know mm. so no, yeah I wouldn't have a dog living in this place, really. Yeah. This is, this is not a good place for a dog. The fact that the dog was here was a bonus for me. Yeah. But uh, I wouldn't have a dog here. I'd love to. I, I'm thinking in the future when I move to Big Bear or <laughs> someplace, yeah. I may, in fact, get a nice big dog that I can wrestle with. Mm. And there are certainly plenty of those in the, the pounds up there. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's all sorts of great dogs out there. Although I'll tell you, man, there's something about um, 
golden retrievers. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't mind a golden retriever mutt, you know, of they some sort. They don't exist. You know. They don't interbreed. Oh, there must be. Yeah, yeah. They probably. don't interbreed. You might be able to find a Labrador cross, but you won't find yeah. a golden retriever cross. Yeah. Yeah, that and, and a, a mixture of golden retriever and poodle. That, that would be, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, in any case, uh, it's not a high priority for me to own another living entity. Mm. Um, but if the situation arose uh, and everything was right, I'd, I'd, I love dogs, man. Do- especially big dogs that you can wrestle with, man. They're, they're just, uh, you know, little dogs. I mean, they're cute, but, you know. Mm. I hadn't really had a physical relationship with that dog. Certainly. And uh, that it's not quite the same as having a, a woman, <laughs> but but still it does this this need for physical or the, yeah for physical closeness. That dog was a, a big part of my life in that way. I understand. I yeah? understand. Yeah. No, I have a cat that you know is is similar and yeah, sits next to me and is yeah. always you know I don't like having him around while I'm eating and that's the one thing that we disagree on the cat and I. <laughs> you and I yeah you and the cat yeah. but um but <laughs> the thing about as long as you understand that that's just merely your opinion then you're okay <laughs> it clearly is the funny thing is that he actually works his way into positions of being very near me while I'm eating as well. <laughs> but when I've stopped eating, that's when he realizes he has the space. And for evenings, I mean, I could be working on my laptop, or I could be, you know, reading in bed, what have you. This cat will just position himself near me. Yeah. Which is very, very strange. I mean, it's strange because... No, it's nice. It, it's, yeah. it's not strange, you know. Well, you know, I'm, I'm probably more of a, a nihilist than you with regards to these things, and I find it very curious that some no, animal... that's just to... your story about who you think you are. No, it's an emotion that occurs to me. I mean, yeah, yeah I know, but I, that, it's a sublinguistic emotion. The, the, the emotion emerges in a context of e- linguistic evaluation. Things get evaluated, and then they res- then they're emoted to. No, this is something which occurs, and then I have to construct it back. So maybe I'm using <laughs> the language maybe. to construct it back. But I frequently, I just discover myself in certain situations, and with this cat. He yeah. just, I'm, you know, uh, my first occurrence is I've been stroking this object for, you know, five, ten minutes and I had no. Yeah. Oh, well, he just showed up he, there somehow. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that he was there. He just yeah. fell under my hand, basically. Yeah. Smart um, cat. He's got you well trained. He does, actually. Yeah. The funny thing with him was that he was, my wife discovered him under a, like a bramble bush at my in laws. And he must have had a very close relationship with a human because he'd obviously lived in the wild for probably at least a month and was really much the worse the wear for this experience. But he also, if the door is open, he'll strut out and he'll keep on walking. He's got no <laughs> affiliation with us humans. So, really? Yeah. Really? I mean, he just, he'll leave and not ever come back. There are cats that are runners. You, when you, when you've seen a variety of cats, you get a sense. And these are obviously the cats that you tend to find. They have an instinct well, to run and not stop. Well, why would you stop them from that? Um, because, well, I enjoy, I mean, irrespective of what I get it, because you like it. (laughs) Okay. I think the cat likes it, too. I mean, I think it's... Well, if he really likes it, he'd come back. He's not stupid, is he? I mean... (laughs) I don't know. This is the funny thing. So, 
You really think it wouldn't come back? It would just go and never come back? I don't know. I can ask him. He's right here. I mean, I, I don't know. I, my sense is I mean, probably... But your sense is if he, if he got outside of the house, you'd never see him again. Well, he obviously had an owner that was clearly devoted to him that he didn't come back to. So... Well, but how that came to be, who knows? Who knows? Yes. I mean, there's, there's always the evaluation that the owner passed away. I mean, all these well, there's, kind of yeah, well, there's whatever. You'd have no idea. It could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. So all you got is a cat that you found. Yeah. And so from that, you assume if he got out of the house that he'd never come oh, back. Oh, no, you've got to appreciate that when the door is left open, this cat struts out without a care in the world, and he will not stop. How do you know? Uh, he In Vegas, he was able to get a few blocks. Were you just following him to see how far he'd go? <laughs> yes. Whether eventually he'd turn around or whether he cared in any yeah. shape or form. Well, maybe he was trying to get away from that asshole that was following him. Perhaps. <laughs> we we have two cats that are very territorial, however, and they will not... I mean, they will, within their space, define their space very strictly yeah. Oh, and yeah, they're, not move yeah. from them. Yeah, they're very highly programmed already. Yeah, yes. this one is programmed... With other programs, you're right. Yes. yes. But I, that's interesting because my sense is, well, I, I don't know. He, how long has he been living with you now? Four years. Four years. Yeah. He's and, very, you think, you, and do you really think he'd just take off and you'd never see him again? I'm pretty clear that that would occur. Really? Yeah. See, that's almost enough for me to want to do the experiment. <laughs> Unfortunately, irrespective of what I said, I actually do like, I mean, he's, he's, the best cat we own from my perspective. So, yeah, I don't think we'll be letting him... Sounds like you don't really own him. No, he owns... No, <laughs> but I think this is part of it, that his his independence is actually... I mean, he chooses to spend time with me. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that. I think Hannah, that says something, you know. Yeah. And he's one of the strangest-looking creatures you'd ever see. I mean, he's got a concave face, so... Maybe that's our association. <laughs> but yes, it is a strange thing. I, I, you know, I've gone through large periods of my life without animals. And then when we moved back here, animals were just everywhere. So, yeah, uh, just fed yeah, I haven't had any around. animals for years and years and years until just recently. Yeah. Yeah. When I grew up with them, though, and yeah, I've, yeah, I've always liked big dogs. Yeah. I've always had dogs that were big. <laughs> Yeah, my family referred to large dogs as protein sponges. That was the descriptive term. I've always felt, I've never felt, the dogs that I've owned have always been, I guess my wife's grandmother's dog is the largest dog I've ever owned. And he is a very, very curious character. He's, but most of the dogs that I owned were considered small to small, medium sized dogs. And I've always felt, from what you describe, associated with the space and the exercise and all this kind of stuff, that I just didn't have the space or the exercising potential for a large dog. Yeah, a large dog needs space, and yeah, absolutely. A lot of exercise. Well, or a space where he can entertain himself, or an environment in which he gets to exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing about that I found with dogs, and I've experienced this, I mean, my, my uncle owns black Labradors. They're larger than regular Labradors, they're, I mean, you know, they're, they're yeah. larger, medium-sized dogs. He's very much the view that he's got enough space where they can exercise themselves. When I encountered them, 
My first instinct was, <laughs> was just was sitting put, around. No, it was to put them on a leash and give them, you know, eight miles worth of walking. I yeah, got four yeah. miles out of them, then bring them back and show the behavioral differences of just yeah. getting forced exercise. A dog that has forced exercise is going to be a very different creature and oftentimes, you know, considerably more pet like. Than a creature that yeah, you have to just... invest some time. Well, exactly. That's why we need better robots. Yes. <laughs> you know? I mean, really, that's a stupid job for a human, but a robot could do that really well. Well, I actually think there's benefit in... I mean, I think there's benefit in actually forcibly exercising humans as well. Oh, absolutely. It's part of the... the see, yeah, education, uh, that's a huge part of it. You know, diet, education, physical exercise. You know, I mean, all, yeah, basic stuff, yeah. So while we weren't talking for a period of time, for whatever reason, I can't even remember the original reason, I started buying Boy Scout handbooks. <laughs> and I'm looking at them here. I'm, oh, I'm yeah, I've heard a lot of people have had that syndrome. That it's, it's really a phenomenon. <laughs> One of my favorites is from the early 1960s. I have them through to this day, both US and Australia, and I think I have a couple of British ones here as well. But it really is a... It's like a manual for life. It really... Were you a Boy Scout? Oh, yeah. So, let me find one of the... I can't find the old... The one, the re, one that I really like, the old one, isn't directly in front of me. So, I'll pull out the Australian handbook from, I guess, the 1950s, 60s? Uh, it looks like it might be 70s. Yeah, 1973. This details every aspect of a young boy's life. It really is astonishing. It, <laughs> it details what they should be interested in. It details what their diet should be. It details their place in society and their future in society. And this oh. is the Australian version. The American versions are just phenomenal. I mean, the American versions are... You have these as PDFs or something? No, I have them as physical books, unfortunately. I can, I can uh, send you a couple. I mean, I've got a sufficient number that I could send you a few. I, that's, uh, that's fascinating. It know. really is. Uh, the, the U.S. ones are considerably more because it talks about... Both there's probably the, some good stuff in there. There's some a lot of really good stuff. And I mean, probably some of, really stupid shit too. I bet. There's though. a whole lot of... I mean, no, it's a combination. Um, the 1960s one, the U.S. one, is really fascinating. It talks about camping trips where you cook, like, steak, macaroni and cheese, just, like, things that I never used to eat when I went camping. <laughs> I mean... Uh, Steaks and macaroni and cheese. No, no, can't recall doing that. It's very, very <laughs> curious. But also, it's very... It's, it's, the themes of what you are in a society and what your responsibilities are. Oh yeah, are in yeah, that's, that should be fascinating. Is just let me give, give me a second here because they must yeah. be they must be close together. I've got them double stacked, unfortunately, because I've got so. What about yeah. for our next conversation? When we talk um, next week, I will definitely have them because now, unfortunately, the US ones are. Uh, Obviously, in a different place. Yeah, if you can get it from the fifties, that would be really interesting because that's what I was. <laughs> I'm sure we can. I mean, ABE books is what's key here, and then you put in the nineteen fifties dates, and then you can get it back. But the thing that struck me is, um, I, as a Boy Scout, read my scouting handbook. I was a, a Cub Scout. They had, to, I had basically had a series of issues with the Scout movement. <laughs> In large part because I had an extra toe and various other things. I mean, I wasn't the 
physical perfect specimen that the scouting movement really wanted to. But there was a lot of additional stuff. I really liked camping, um, and I liked a lot of the craft stuff. But I read the scouting book cover to cover when I had it as a boy. And also, I have another book here called The Boy's Book of Hobbies, which is actually my father's original one, which also similarly gave a set of hobbies that boys would be interested in. Oh, yeah. Including, you know, boat building, there's trains, there's radio-controlled planes. Yeah, These all are sorts of things, string yeah. Controls. So this is really, it's interesting. Definitely not for girls. <laughs> it is it is very interesting reading these things and thinking about so i i read this my wife got a little concerned actually this is probably why she likes me talking to you now that i had actually bought far too many of these scouting books because i i see in front of me five and these are just the australian ones the u.s ones are but i got them for various periods um of time and just started doing compare and contrast through the evenings the, these are worthy of the internet, you know. I, this this needs to be compiled and put out there as an archive for people. Yes, it is interesting, this phenomena. Um, I'm certainly sympathetic for others to do it. I still hold, for whatever reason, because they haven't kicked me out yet, I'm still the chair of the International Game Developers Association Intellectual Property Rights Special Interest Group. I've done this for more than in 10 years now, and really... I don't even know what the IGDA is anymore. So, but I do maintain that I need to main, that need to have some connection with intellectual property rights um, law. And uh, what should happen, which hasn't happened yet, because obviously the scouting movement is going through its own nonsense currently. But there should be some kind of internal movement within the scouts to actually memorialise this in a. I mean, the, the scouting books from the 1950s have really questionable. <laughs> modern <bet>. value. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. uh, there's nothing about you know avoiding pedophilia or gay people. <laughs> so, no, probably you know, not. No. So the modern scouting <laughs> movement's really, you know, um, the thing that struck me is the back of the book in the U.S. ones have ads for things that boys will like: condoms, right? <laughs> Coca-Cola, shotguns, bikes. You know, these kind of things. And I, it's actually, there's also some stuff about like drug education in the 19, in the early 1960s one. It talks about how when you become a young man, you shouldn't smoke and you shouldn't drink. And there's this absolutely terrible thing that you'll find out about called marijuana that you should avoid and all this kind of stuff too. Wow. But the blueprint of the young man becoming man in society. And the talking, the discussion about civic duties, uh, respecting other religions, understanding that scouting is an international phenomenon, which means that you will meet people internationally that have, you know, completely different perspectives to your own, but they are still all humans. I mean, these kind right, of phenomena yeah, really, good. you know, I, I mean, it's very moving to read these books yeah. because you realize that if, if, if humans were given, um, some kind of endorsed blueprint for their existence in this kind of formal sense versus the haphazard way that people yeah. fall into these things, it would be a very different society. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And also, and give them the knowledge that they have been programmed. Yes. You know, look, there are many ways to look at the universe. This is the best we've been able to come up with. <laughs> We're going to program you with what we've done so far. Good luck. Yes. <laughs> All the best. Yes. 
But the thing that struck me about it as well is, and this is something that's been completely lost in this country, and you can see this progressively going through the scouting books. The well, it hasn't been completely lost. No, it no, has. no, no, no. Let me finish. Let me finish. The role of engineering and science in the quality of life that that is had. The modern scouting books do not discuss engineering, science, any of these kind of things associated with the quality of life. Also, the earliest... They, ne- they don't discuss it. They don't discuss it. They don't... Mm-hmm. Do the, there's a... I mean, the 19... The period of time... Yeah, that, that was all... Up, yeah, we didn't need to know that. Yeah. You know, the period of time that you grew up and, you know, into the, the 60s, there was still a very strong movement in this country associated with, you know, the wonders of things like space yeah, exploration. and with progress. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And... It, it's interesting <laughs> to read that because it doesn't, there must have been a period, I guess, probably a decade or two ago when I would have read this stuff where it would have been very, very cynical to me. But now it actually, you know, it's actually quite moving. I mean, it's something that brings emotion to me that this is so far removed from contemporary life. We can create a new universe. We can. It's funny that we both eulogize 1950s <laughs> propaganda as being something of, of you know, interest. Well, that's just true. a data point. That's it just one of, the, one of the things. How we fit that into our story is up to us. So what I'm going to do is pull my bookshelf apart, um, take another sip of wine while I try to find this, because this is actually beginning to irritate me that I can't find this book which should be directly in front of me. I'm just getting annoyed with myself here, Aaron. I cannot find this book. Well, see, that's what's so cool about being me. Because <laughs> I don't really give a shit. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It would, it would have... Uh, let me... Let me... You know, well, whatever you want to do. If you want to be upset and pissed and look around for it for a few more minutes, I'll just sit here and drink my wine. Okay, why don't why don't you do that and uh, just give me a well, then leave the mic on so I can hear you cursing and stumbling and breaking well, things. I, I would be cursing and stumbling and breaking things, but uh, it does strike me as a. I suspect my wife might have. My wife might have actually. That's probably it. That's what they do. Here we are. I found it. Ah. ah. It was hiding. It, it was wasn't hiding. your wife after all. No, it wasn't. It was my... It was okay. hiding. You were, it the was Boy hiding. Scout Handbook. Boy Scouts of America. The date on this is... 1960, Heron. Oh, 1960. Man, okay. Uh, let me find some... Let me find some... So I was 14 years old. I, I, I don't know if I was still a Boy Scout or not. Probably not. I don't know. Taking care of things. America is rich. With an abundance of material wealth around us, it's easy to become wasteful. So easy to throw an old thing away and pick up a new one, just because the old is old and the new is new. It wasn't always like this in America. The settlers had to uh, be careful about everything they had. Their food, their clothing, their personal property. (laughs) They were were never certain what the future would bring. Their rule was... Use it up, wear it out, make do or do without. Let me find another section. I yeah. mean, this is this is this is good stuff. Book, yeah, you know? good programming. <laughs> Absolutely. Strayed from the gang. This is to describe um, what what you find in camping if you if you wander away from your fellow comrades. But if you've ever become separated from your friends in a wilderness expedition, the thing to do is for you to let them find you, 
rather than for you to attempt to find them. As soon as your absence is noted, someone will start looking for you, and the best way to help the searchers is for you to stay put and have faith that someone will find you and get you out. Prayer will help. <laughs> well, outside that, <laughs> simply make yourself as comfortable as possible and wait. <laughs> I was telling you, Aaron, you didn't believe me. This is full of gold. <laughs> this is full of gold. It really is. <laughs> Duty to my country. Well, see, that's the thing is that this is not a government pablum. This is programming from a private organization who just says what the fuck they think. Here we are, from boy to man. What kind of man do you want to be? There is a simple way to find the answer. By first <laughs> the answer, answer no. Yes. <laughs> By first answering another question. What can what kind of man do I most admire? Sit quietly and alone with a pencil and paper. Then ask yourself, which men from America's past and present do I look up to? Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Manson. Anyway. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, put their names down. Yeah, Mickey do and I... Mallory. <laughs> why do I admire them? Why do I like them? Write down the whys and the whats. High on your list may be your father. Maybe your father. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe. And perhaps... The... Perhaps <laughs> not. <laughs> you know. And perhaps the names of relatives. Your scoutmaster, your religious leader, your best friends. The guy who sings the hit number one single. Your list may include Americans like Washington because of his loyalty <laughs> to his country. Lincoln for his simplicity. I hadn't even thought of him. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt for his enthusiasm and fighting oh, spirit. Oh, yes, of course, Theodore. Yes. yes. Edison for his energy and perseverance. Uh -huh. And so uh -huh. it goes on. Yeah. What about Alan Watts? Doesn't mention him. He's uh, not an American. Is he oh, an American? Oh, that's right. No, no, no. Well, he became an American. He Eventually. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so it's full of these kind of gems, Heron. It's, um, you know, a solid evening plus worth of... Uh, yeah, that, what a world that was. Yeah, that's the world I grew up in, too. Yes. You know that? But the thing is, I already knew that was bullshit. <laughs> I, honestly, I, I don't remember just when it dawned on me, but there was some point along the way, and I mean, this is unfortunate really, but I just decided that I couldn't really tr trust adults, that they were full of shit. That you ask them questions and the answers they give you were just bullshit. They don't mean anything. Yes. And it took me a long time to sort of come to terms with that because I kept thinking, well, no, I'm missing something. But finally, I can, you know, it seemed, no, I, I don't think I'm missing anything here. They're fucking nuts. <laughs> yes. So, well, I'll put the scouting book aside. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I guess I've always felt the same way. But I do, it does strike me that this kind of analysis is seldom done by the masses. Well, they don't, they don't do any analysis. Oh, people don't think about this stuff. Yeah. Like those terms. It's just not in their universe. Yeah. Their universe is the next, uh, couple months, maybe. And, and yeah, yeah, it's just, so I'm saying the fucking human beings are asleep. <laughs> they, they live in this story. And uh, they are totally defined by the story they've got going. 
So the sense of future is one of these really curious properties that is often attributed to humans, but I see in other animals as well. I mean, I think the notion of hope towards the future, we have a cat, for example, that plays with a toy. It's a swing toy. It's like a feather toy on a stick. My wife will play with the cat with the toy, then put the toy out, and the cat will wait patiently by the toy. He'll come out of, you know, wake up in the morning, strut out, and wait by the toy for hours on end, <laughs> in some cases, for the toy to come down and for him to be played with the toy. This indicates to me, at least, perhaps somewhat naively, a sense of future. Listen, I think, especially dogs and cats, and most mammals, I think, share enormous amounts of cognition that's quite similar to ours. Yes. What they're lacking is language, the way we use it. But they've got just about everything else. That is, They can clearly uh, form a map of their territory and negotiate that territory, make plans to act in the future, you know, all sorts of things. They can do just about everything we can do. They just don't have language. Well, they may not have as richly predicated language as we have. Well, they, they have, have means yeah. of communicating which are yeah. akin to simple they, language. You're right. They have language. Uh, yeah, but they what they don't have is a shared language. Their language is between them and the world, not between them and the other members of their of their species. No, I think they have. They have, I think they have basic language well, with the other members of their species as well. I mean, I think some of yes, you're right. Some of them do. You're right. Yeah. But well, anyway, it's it's a that's a nitpicking this this idea. But the point is, yeah, that, that on deep level, that's why I say I don't think language is basically a communication thing. I think it's basically a mapping tool. Certainly. And every animal, mosquitoes, are able to map their territory and, and find their way around and decide where to go at a particular place or why to go, you know. But what's your definition of communication in these circumstances? Because well, I would claim yeah. that that was communication. Um, no, that's learning, that's mapping the territory. See, that's what I'm saying is that that's what language is for, is to map the territory. But the map that I make with, uh, is a map of my experience. The map you make is a map of your experience. Okay. Uh, and you are just part of my map of experience until what we did, which was we began to share maps. Mm. And that doesn't occur in anything but humans. And that's why you and I are able to sit here and do what we're doing right now. Because it's really not anything an individual human can do. This can only happen between two people. It's interesting, actually, because I've basically completely eliminated my monologue podcasts. I don't... I mean, I used to do... I mean, my longest podcast is a monologue podcast uh-huh. where I talk about noble ape. I talk about a series of kind of abstract ideas that came through it. Occasionally people would email me with questions yeah. and I talk about that, but that was solely in a monologue format Yeah, that I could extend to typically about 20 minutes on. That just sounds topics. boring as hell. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting actually, because that's the topic that's the podcast that's really fallen by the wayside. <laughs> yeah. It's self-indulgent. To a certain you should, you should I mean, still, no, you should still record those, but they're just private rants. No, because ultimately, <laughs> if you're trying to, I mean, if you're talking about software, you're trying to teach someone else something about the software. Well, know. yeah, okay, or limited distribution then. Yeah. Yeah, it's for graduate students only. <laughs> <laughs> or people who graduate into following the podcast. Somewhere. Right, whatever. Yeah. 
Yes. These are amazing times where you or I can really, really participate deeply in creating a new civilization. It is an interesting phenomenon associated with the ability to put ideas out. And I think this is what's truly unique about what we are experiencing currently, that what previously required editors, publishers, agents, <laughs> all this additional nonsense has completely fallen by the wayside. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, two folks who really have would not have met if it weren't for this format have met through this format and then continue to communicate. How through. did we, how did we meet? We I'm sure I've asked you. What happened was I was recording a biota podcast. We had on uh, Mark Badeau and you came into the room and you said that you were kind of interested in the stuff that we were talking about. And you introduced your notion of wild English. And then at the conclusion of the podcast, you said you to me, you've got a lot you can learn about this podcasting format. Let me tell you some things. And I should point out as well that you had a different microphone, I guess, than you have currently or something like that. Your audio was relatively breathy and distorted. <laughs> and I was going to teach you all about it. Exactly. Huh? And I thought, this is a good start. Let me see if Well, I thanks can... for cutting me some slack, man. Let me I see appreciate if I can humor it. this guy. And then, oh, um, man. Then the Woo. next time we communicated, which is the first entry of the Zero <laughs> show on this one, I think you were in a Starbucks playing back some of your audio, you know, the usual kind of format. Yeah. And we struck up a conversation, and then I thought, well, I can humor this guy for another recording. And then we got on Skype, and then through the Skype conversations, through various machines on my end, we were able, I guess, to um, yeah, to kind of continue this communication. And certainly in the time where the show was down, I often, I mean, I still do go back and listen to the recordings, if nothing more to kind of have a chuckle about, you know, times gone by. It's yeah. funny, the similarities and the differences. I mean, this is the thing that strikes me throughout Yeah, it's all pretty much the same old shit. Well, for you it is. For <laughs> yeah, me, it isn't. Yeah. No, you're right. It's different. You're right. You're right. For me, yeah. it's always the same old shit, right? Yeah. And for me, it's <laughs> completely different. Yeah. So, this is where it comes to, Aaron. Yes. But um, yeah, well, just... I'm comfortable with that. See, that's okay. I can go with that. That's true. I've settled down to a story that is is the best I've been able to come up with. I'm certainly open to finding a better one, but I haven't seen anything even closely <laughs> approaching that. Yeah. But um, so yeah, I'm going with this. I'm going with this story. <laughs> and I mean, since we started talking, I've changed my location and changed a lot of my framing, and also gone through. A wide variety of experiments yeah. that I've shared with you. Well, you're a much younger person than me. So you have all this storm and drong to go through. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I mean, the, the important point about this format is that I don't think it's exclusive to you and me. I mean, I think it's something that could translate itself into other conversations. You are just considerably more available than most of the fuck that you know, could fall into the Well, anybody, that's the whole point. Obviously, anybody can do any damn thing they want to. Mm. Luckily, we've got some people listening to us, apparently. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's... That, but I think probably anybody, if they actually... That's the thing is, if you really do have anything to say, if you have done your work, people will respond to it. Yeah. Even if you're as inarticulate <laughs> as I am. Yes. 
Well, Heron, I'm fresh out of ideas for this evening's conversation. Do you have anything you want to float? Fresh out of ideas. That's an interesting concept, fresh out of ideas. Well, I had ideas up until now, and now I'm fresh out of them. Okay, newly out of ideas. Okay, out of ideas. Hmm. For this evening, with the view that it's a Friday evening and... Yes, I, I, I will edit this. Well, see, I have nothing better to do. If if we hang up, uh, I guess I will find a reason to continue living. <laughs> I, I, so I probably won't commit suicide. Very so good. You, you don't have to worry about that. Good odds. I like that. But, but I actually don't have anything more entertaining to do. Huh. <laughs> and so... Um, well, can you Can you speak a little bit more Latin while I still have you on the line? Oh, no, I probably can't. Uh, alas. Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something. I'm working on right okay. now. Um, for instance, the phrase as a sequence of phonemes: "Don't believe everything you hear your language machine say." Mm-hmm. I've written that phonetically, and then transformed all of the. Uh, all of the individual sounds, wherever there's a nasal sound, like whether it's M or N or N, the NG sound, I just replace it with one of the other ones. So it has the exact same sort of rhythm and sound of the original, but it has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm learning how to say it. I, it's really difficult. Uh, to articulate it freely, you know, to just, it's so easy to say, don't believe everything you hear your language machine say, but to say that number of phonemes in that kind of fluency that doesn't have any kind of historical programming is really difficult so far. (laughs) Yeah, somewhere through, I guess, my late teens, early 20s, I tried to write different languages, and I tried to see if I could speak them. And it was through a period of time where I was also trying to change what I ate quite dramatically, and looking at pickling and fermentation and these kind of things, particularly on vegetables, as a way of exploring like different perspectives in food, a lot of kind of rose water and other things. And it was it struck me that what you're trying to do associated with these things is only beneficial if you have a community that will share this communication. To do it to oneself and to try and see if one can reconstruct a new language or at least experiment within the boundaries of the language that we have. Look, for example, if if we're talking about um, uh, like ghetto, American ghettos, the language that comes out of you know, ghetto environments. Yeah. It's quite curious. I mean, the whole notion of rhyming slang and all these kind of things as well. They survive because there is a community that speaks them. I mean, this perhaps is part of the Latin discussion as well. Yeah. The, in order to do these kind of experiments in isolation, you really are not really even conducting experiments. It's kind of at a sub-experimentation level because what you're actually achieving is really just working on yourself on some fundamental level. It's really just trying to figure out what the hell the questions are, mm. as far as I'm concerned. I think it's getting real close. You know, I, I said my sense is that I'm getting close to being able to say this about as well as I'm going to be able to say it. I'm not quite there, but, I, you know, it could come 
tonight could come six months from now, but it's always for a long time there's been this whole issue of walking a line between accuracy and simplicity. And the more accurate you get, <laughs> the more difficult it becomes to really grasp. The simpler it gets, <laughs> the easier it is to understand. And there's this dance going on. Do you feel through, I mean, in terms of the folk that you've met through Facebook and these kind of things, and also through your, you know, your Gendo works, what, whatever they may be. In whatever of, that it means. <laughs> well, in terms of, you know, getting a volume of people at least to yeah. have an interaction with you. Well, some people actually know, have heard the word Gendo. I figure that's a victory. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So I guess I look at things like, um, you know, these meetup groups and these kind of things as ways of reaffirming strange. Yeah. That, I've, been, groups. I've been looking at, I think since you met, mentioned that, I've looked at that. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, the thing that strikes me is for a period of time, I think there was a period of time where we didn't interact, maybe just before I took the job to when I took the job that I currently have, where we didn't communicate for maybe two or three months. And through that period, there was a fellow who was creating some kind of visual aid for you associated with language. And I don't really get the sense of your followers, your devotees through Gendo and, you know, what you do on Facebook in terms of whether there are a like-minded group that could actually participate oh, there is, in that. There is, but it's really as much two or three people. That's exactly my point. Yeah, yeah, and I'm in contact with them and uh, things are in, things are afoot. <laughs> well, you say that, but I mean, in terms of in terms of the kind of exercises that you are doing here, is this something that these people would interact in, or is this something that they observe you doing? I'm not sure I understand what your question so is. So, if you create, if you change, uh, you know, if you change uh, various consonants or what have you. In communication, is this an interaction? Oh, oh no, this is a, oh, no, this is a purely personal exercise in awareness of how your own language machine operates to make it a reality instead of an abstraction. It's, it's an exercise to focus your attention. That's the only purpose of it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess I have the fine appreciation that I, my language in terms of communication, is very, very hard-wired. And I find this actually... When oh, yeah! I, when I have to change aspects of my speech for publication, for example, when I have to change aspects of my writing for publication, and then how I have to embody it in my Yeah, writing form. and speaking are entirely different universes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, no, but the way that I do it is actually to embody it in my spoken form. So when I'm writing, it is... It is part of it. It's not something okay, yeah. that's in addition to it. So the, just... the spoken form is primary for you? Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Okay. It is for me, for sure. But however I visualize in the written form, so when I try to remember things, I remember I my memory is of words that literally float in space. We've talked about this. So when I tried to think of your former name before you became Heron Stone, I saw some of the letters, but they basically have to form in front of me. And I can, I know very quickly, typically, in certain circumstances, the first letter or maybe the last letter, and then I'll think of the third letter, and then I'll assemble it that way. And my memory is very much in terms of letters rather than pictures, because the pictures, in most times, are meaningless. 
fundamentally. I mean, I can see people's faces in my mind. If I can't remember their names, it's useless. In terms of communication, I mean, it might give me some sense of peace. But, you know, the, the way in which you construct things in terms of words, images, or, you know, whether it's spoken or whether it's written is very, very curious. Oh, yeah. And it's not even something you are doing. See, that's the whole issue that I'm most concerned with is the fact that you even couch it in terms of something you're doing. It's not something you're doing. It's something your language machine is doing for you. And it, it turns out that actually it's doing a whole lot of really stupid shit that you could do without very easily. So when I literally <laughs> visualized letters, some part of visualization I would imagine would be sublinguistic, but what you're describing here is that the fact that it in, even includes letters indicates that it's linguistic. Uh, that would seem pretty clear to me. Yeah. Well, again, see, depends on what you mean by language. Like, Written language is, is a level quite different than, you know, the oral tradition that existed for probably hundreds of thousands of years before writing. So th they're different, but, but yes. <laughs> what was the question? The question was <laughs> if, if it is just literally letter shapes appearing in my mind, which is letter shapes. Okay. Which is a yeah. why well, I would think of as being a visual thing. Yeah, you actually see. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it uppercase or lowercase? Lowercase, typically. Lowercase, I mean, okay. it's it's grammatically correct. So yeah, if it's okay. someone's name, it'll yeah. be a capitalized letter or these kind of all things. All right, all right. So you see that? All right. I've, I visually see the words appearing. Why well, in in you know my mind's eye or whatever the terminology may be yeah. around that. Yeah. But I see it in terms of the letters emerging from some smoke. Smoke. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. So very cinema. Yeah, my mind is very cinema. You know, cinema All right. Yeah. All right. That's it, great. It works in that light. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't have anything like that going for me. <laughs> yes. It is funny because I can, I can typically recall things within a set amount of time, and I know with some degree of confidence that I will be able to recall some things in a set amount of time. Your former name is not one of those things, however, Heron. <laughs> because I've known other people that have changed their names and your former name is similar to some of their names. Well, and also is quite similar to my current name. True, yes, yes. So this is, in fact, the problem is that I'm having two, two name maps and I can only resolve one of them, and I'm pretty confident it isn't your name. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, good luck. I'm working on it. I know it's occurred <laughs> in a prior podcast as well, and I listened to them sufficiently that I should be able to. Yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, I, it, this comes up every once in a while, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out, do I have a position on this? <laughs> you know, have I completely divorced myself from that character? Hmm. Uh, do I? Do I not? Uh, even dare speak its name. <laughs> I had a I had a dream last night. We normally don't digress into dreams, but let's digress into a dream, okay. which involved moving. And I have this. I have similar versions of this dream quite frequently, where I'm moving through Australia, and then I will, as I did in this dream, walk through a doorway, and I'll be in the United Kingdom. 
there are a sufficient number of kind of architectural similarities that even though on a number of levels they're completely different locations, they're places that I've spent a good portion of my life, and I can move between them. And in this dream's case, I realised when I arrived in the United Kingdom that I had no travel documents, I had no identity papers, and I had to find a profession in the UK where I could make money without these documents. So I went and started repairing houses, as you do. And through repairing houses, I discovered two houses that I liked in particular. One was very similar to the shed where I used to live, which was like a double garage that had been loosely converted to human habitation. And the other was a lighthouse. And because I was working on both of these locations in parallel, I was doing the repairs on the shed and also the repairs on the lighthouse because they were maybe, I don't know, three miles apart from one another. And having these interesting experiences actually working out what I wanted in my life. And I think this represents something very strong. We haven't done any degree of dream interpretation, but I do do quite a bit of dream interpretation in large part with my wife. And it struck me that these two things represent, I guess, the turning points that I see, two potential turning points in my life. One associated with familiarity and past, and another associated with being or trying to be a beacon of some form. And the structural elements of these two buildings also represented very strongly my concerns and my expectations associated with these two potential parts. And the interesting thing was it was so divorced from where I am now that I could see this being two very distinct differences from where I am currently, couched in house repairs and looking for a place where I would finally live. And these kind of dream metaphors, we've talked periodically associated with lucid dreaming and also my kind of solution dreaming. But this is a good example of one of these kind of solution dreams that I find coming up through my my sleeping moments, which in no way map into our previous discussions. But I think, you know, dreaming was a topic that we used to discuss periodically. I almost never remember dreaming anymore. Every once in a while I do, but there's never anything really earth-shaking. They're sort of like dreams, mm. <laughs> you know. I set problems in my dreams with that I look to solve through my dreams. I use my, as we discussed previously, which amused you yeah. very much previously, I use my dream space very much as a solution space, <laughs> and I wake up and I remember them, and I utilize those memories in in being parts or at yeah, least an exploration. Yeah, something to consider, yeah. Yeah. And I believe very strongly that actually, as you do through language, that our dream space, what we do through dreams, is a very strong... Yeah. Listen, I agree with you. Yeah. It's just simply something I haven't explored. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, for it would be really good. Obviously, that's a realm that needs to be explored much more deeply. It's very yeah. much a muscle, too. I mean, I find this that mm -hmm. you need to exercise it in terms of... There are techniques that you can learn associated with working through... Oh, there's, probably a, there's just probably a million things that need to be codified and put into education for children. Mm. And this is, yeah, I think this is probably at least two generations removed from where we are now. Whereas yeah, your stuff is... 30 to 50 years, Exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, I think it's certainly... My experience of lucid dreaming and also the discussions that I've had with my wife and a few other people, I don't normally talk about my dreaming, um, make me... Re I mean, I appreciate this 
it's a central part of Noble Ape as well. I mean, the very first part of the Noble Ape's cognitive development meant that they had an active and counter-awake sleep state where they could actually resolve problems in the sleep state. <laughs> and this was actually central to the early development of Noble Ape because I saw... There are only so many cycles in a second. <laughs> well, no, there are only so many cycles in a day, basically, and there are things that need to be resolved through that. Uh, it is interesting. I, I had a former co-worker. In fact, I got him a job at a company I worked for after I first worked with him who had been part of a Berkeley sleep study in his um, early to mid-teens. And he was really messed up because of it. Sleep deprivation. No, it was actually uh, sleep and dream, like um, cognitive, uh, like cognitive activity, and then waking up. At, yes, there were elements of sleep deprivation in it, but it wasn't just sleep. It was just preventing REM, right? I've heard where they yeah. every time they start dreaming, they prevented yeah. that. They yeah. wake them up as yeah. soon as they went into REM. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know about that. Uh, amongst other things, and yeah. he he's now in his late forties. And still deeply marred by really? those experiences, yes. See, the question, of course, is he marred by the experiences or uh, marred by his story about his experiences? So he was tested extensively while I worked with him in the first job. And they realized as soon as he entered REM sleep, he would forcibly wake himself up. Like he would stop breathing in certain circumstances. Really? And, yeah. And it really had messed him up on some deep okay, level. So can they reprogram that? that well, would... What they were advising, because I think the whole aspect of sleep analysis is has probably gone backwards even from where it yeah. was. Um, so what they had is they had him connected to basically a breathing machine that forcibly pumped him with oxygen at points where <laughs> he would stop breathing and he had a little clip uh, on his finger uh. and these kind of things. And I don't think that really improved his sleep in any way, shape or form. Yeah, see, these are the things, again, I, I want to just sit down and talk to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, He's a see, fascinating what's character. really going on here? What is, this is fascinating. You know, the thing that struck me, I mean, I certainly spent a long period of time with him because this absolutely fascinated me for a start, as I'm sure yeah. you'd appreciate. Um, was also, and I've acted, it's funny because I'm probably 13, 14 years younger than him. But in terms of a professional mentor, I've, I mean, his current job is also one that I wrote a glowing reference for him. And I, the previous two jobs, similarly, I've been pretty strong in writing him glowing references. Um, but he is someone who, well, he represents a period. I mean, he is, um, his father was an academic at Berkeley and his mother was a school teacher at Berkeley. And, you know, they got divorced, but his father is still at Berkeley. And he very much represents a kind of Northern Californian experience. He was here through, I mean, he was a child, I guess, through the late 60s and early 70s here. Um, and his experiences, particularly associated with the sleep study, are really fascinating. I mean, he, after that experience, he moved to Vegas um, while he was in his late teens and basically did the rest of his growing up in Vegas. Um, somewhat marred, I guess, from this experience <laughs> of the sleep study. Wonderful choice of cities. Yes. yes. Well, I mean, you know, I, my, my sense of it, the experience that he had was that he wanted to get as far away from this 
culture as possible. And you can't get pretty further than Vegas. I mean, maybe not geographically, but certainly. Oh, but that's the epitome of American culture. That's not getting away from. Well, no, no. You what you have is two different epitomes of American culture that are represented in Berkeley and Vegas, yeah, and yeah. they're just different. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm actually going back to Las Vegas with my wife for a week in the second week of April. Why? Well, some conference or something. No, actually, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to um, this whole notion of exploring one's past is something that exists on a very fundamental level for me. And I Ah, think so, for example, I'm getting together. I'm having two lunches for the two different jobs that I worked while I was in Las Vegas. And I'm having a large number of people turn up. I mean, I get the sense that I had quite a strong emotional impact on a lot Oh, of good. Okay, that. well, then that could be very interesting. Then. We're also yeah. going to our house that we still have in Vegas and meeting the family that lives there. Uh, and I'm avoiding seeing my wife's sisters. My wife is currently on a um, let's give up sushi kick, which I'm not particularly in favor of, so we may not go to the sushi restaurants in Vegas. The thing that strikes me is... I well, have, you could go to them, couldn't you? Yeah. I, I, I have a colleague who recently took a week off. He went skiing with his family. And through this period of time, I was unfortunately the person that had to call him three times and get various additional bits of information from him. I do work for a company that is pretty free to interrupt people's holidays. That's my only concern. Yeah. 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 Um, that you're never true. I mean, when I was in, you never know. When I was in Michigan, for example, I think I worked two and a half, maybe three days through that period on things that came but up. But you can do your work online wherever you are, right? Or you do you can, actually have to? Yeah, but the you've got to understand that working is not a, it's not an interaction with a machine. It's a psychology. Well, whatever it is, I'm just saying it's, it doesn't require you to change your location. Well, it, it, on on a physical level, no, but on a cognitive level, it oh does. yeah, yeah, your whole universe changes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you can do it wherever you are. So yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, it's different if you have to go home. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in certain circumstances that may occur as well, but I mean, thankfully, I don't think this will be one of those circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just something that I, I mean, you know, I just have to have the experience basically. The thing that strikes me about Las Vegas is that, um, it, I lived there for six years. I mean, that's a hell of a long time, relatively speaking. And yeah. through that, well, you can get of, used to anything, you know? Yeah. You can, you can be beaten sp- by model rail track and this uh, kind of stuff. I spent a year in Vietnam. I got used to that. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. You know, yeah. Yeah. Las Vegas, so that's easy to get used to. <laughs> yeah. I never, actually, no, there was one incident where I feared for my life in Las Vegas. I would walk a path when I, the first job I had in Las Vegas, um, the apartment complex I we lived in was relatively close by my office, but the dividing thing was a length of railway track. So I would walk probably a mile along the railway track and then go into a business park and then walk a bit further and I'd be at my office. And um, through walking along the railway track, there was a feral cat that I would occasionally stroke or come close to. And I got quite fond of the feral cat and it was part of my way. Yeah. And um, one, I think it might have, I can't recall whether it was morning or evening, 
I was walking along the railway track and there was no cat. And then this was a relatively isolated part. I mean, basically, there were office complexes, but it was the backs of them. It wasn't anything. It was you were basically sheltered from humanity. Yeah. And I kind of got the sense that there was home. There were homeless people that lived in the in the brush. Yeah. Anyway, I was walking along one uh, day, and there was a bag on the tracks, uh, like a shopping, not even a shopping bag, one of those, you know, large. Uh, paper bags that, you know, women get their clothing in sometimes, you know, this kind of, um, and I had a sense from the smell of the bag that I knew what was inside the bag. But for whatever reason, I got up on the tracks and looked inside, and it was the cat's body just completely viscerated. And it had clearly either been done, well, it'd probably been done by a human. I don't think the train had done that. But it had been put in a memorial on the train tracks. Yeah. And that struck me, uh, yes. that told me that this was clearly human activity in the area yeah. that I was moving in that was not particularly pleasant. Yeah. Now, truth be told, one of my wife's, I mean, one of my wife's sister's friends was shot and killed in Las Vegas while we were there. He was a very strange character, actually. He was one of these, it's terrible because living in Vegas, you started getting this mentality that you knew if something horrible was going to happen to someone, it was probably going to happen to this guy. <laughs> my well, my yeah. wife did he know that? My wife's sisters had a Fourth of July party. They basically shut down the street, and all the houses had the Fourth of July party. This fellow came to the Fourth of July party and threw a glass bottle on the on the asphalt near a group of children. And I was one. I think I was the only man who had to forcibly remove this guy. And he was slightly smaller than me, but basically of my stature. Together with my wife's sister, we both had to kind of physically remove him from the party. He was basically someone who would get into these ridiculous confrontations with people and just behave stupidly. <laughs> and you knew in an environment yeah, where people yeah. were carrying weapons that this would get out of, could get out of hand. And yeah, one day it did. And my wife called me up and said he was dead. And I said, good. You, you've got to just expect <laughs> that these things might happen to someone like that, as terrible as it is to say that out loud. No, you, it's just what he was looking for. You have to anticipate that basically that this is, yeah, that these are the kind of circumstances. That's that the occur. game he was playing. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he finally met someone who wasn't going to, you know, yeah. wasn't interested in politely asking him to leave. <laughs> yeah. You know. So, it was yeah. a strange environment. I mean, I think Well, it's you, a humbling experience to for anybody actually to really get that they already have exactly what they've created for themselves. Yes. <laughs> but if you can get past that, well shit, man, you got it made. If you can get past that and survive, then you've got it yeah, made. Yes, yeah. that's the caveat there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, actually you can't survive. That's the whole point. <laughs> Because whoever it is you think you are, that ain't who you are anyway. That's just who you think you are. Mm. Who you really are hasn't exposed itself yet until you test it. Yes. But, um, yeah, Las Vegas was full of these kind of experiences. And funnily enough, I mean, the kind of experiences I'm looking to have in Las Vegas are more as a tourist yeah. than they are as someone who previously lived there. I think the ability to spend an inordinate quantity of time just sitting, I mean, I'm not going to put money into a slot machine or anything like that, <laughs> but just sitting, really? people watching, you know. Oh, yeah, that could be good. And all this kind of stuff, because really, 
it's an ability just to do this decompression that I, the staring at the wall that I don't normally have the, the t temporal opportunity to do. My wife has complained bitterly. She's been back to Las Vegas three times <laughs> since we were last there. This is the first time I'm going back. My wife has complained bitterly that we could be on a Mexican cruise or something like that, but instead we're going to Las Vegas. And. Ah, good point. So. My view with this is actually I want to go back to Las Vegas. I want to actually have this experience. I want to see people I once knew. And I want to, you know, and it has the benefit of I will still be slightly telephone contactable for work. But certainly <laughs> what I'm hearing about associated with these Mexican cruises doesn't make them sound pretty No, lately that hasn't been looking very good. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, my view is maybe not a Mexican yeah. cruise. Yeah. Yeah, well, Alaska. Maybe Alaska. No, the Alaskan one's scary. No, that should more. be in the summer, though, not in mm. the... No, yeah. the Alaskan one's... Yeah. Tour. I Actually, one of my co the same fellow who went on the skiing excursion is going on an Alaskan cruise. My in-laws have been on the Alaskan cruise, actually. They, you know, they had a, a pretty good time, and I've heard people say positive things about it. I just would want to see Alaska differently. You can see Alaska by rail. I think that's probably my... That would be... Option. Yeah, that would be good. Well, by rail and private plane. <laughs> Yes. And helicopter actually would be nice. Yes. Yeah, actually a helicopter would probably do it real real nice. See that's the thing that just being filthy fucking rich, you could just do anything you wanted, you know? That would be so awesome. <laughs> just go see you know, spend three billion dollars. Well, no, to see Alaska. <laughs> to be fair about the state of Alaska, they'll actually pay you to live there, Heron. You get seventeen thousand dollars for living in Alaska. Really? Yeah. No shit. No seventeen thousand dollars. Yeah. Just to move there. Yeah. No. No, I find that difficult to believe. The well, I mean, this I've heard from one time seventeen thousand dollars or every year. I think it's per year. <laughs> well, that's good to know, man. That may be my plan B. <laughs> yeah. As long as they got internet, really doesn't that could be kind of interesting, actually. I, I doubt you would last a year there, Heron. Well, see, that's the thing, it doesn't really make much difference. My cell I've already you know, when I my last physical move, I realized that it didn't change anything. My real community is here in the matrix doesn't make any difference where my body is parked. Oh, I think it would make a difference if your body was absolutely freezing most of the year. Oh, well, no, I wouldn't be. I'd be in a, an apartment with a heater, I hope. Shit, if I'm freezing outside, then I must have done... I shouldn't be there. No, but my I point is that irrespective of... Well, I, I guess you could have your food delivered to you. But if you had to emerge from that environment, you'd have to experience the temperatures at some stage. Oh, yeah, yeah, but within... Yeah, well, I, again, I can, I can do that. That's not a problem. You know, I mean, it, yeah. With the right clothing, that's not a big issue, really. Have you ever lived in a cold environment for any length of time? Uh, not for a long time. I, I went actually went backpacking in the middle of winter in the Sierras oh, with, okay. a, with a guy once. So, And that was when I decided I really didn't like that kind of cold weather. I'm not going to do any more of this kind of backpacking. <laughs> You know, this is no no fun at all. And that's springtime in Alaska, <laughs> those kind of temperatures. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, again, uh, I'm saying it's, it's just a plan. It's one plan. It's good to know that it's there. I think I can deal with just about anything. Really, you just put me in a cell and keep the temperature right and give me some food to eat, and I'm okay. 
Yeah, but those damn language monkeys are all about, you know. Well, I know, but they're everywhere you go, so. <laughs> I know, but they might as well be warm as opposed to the cold language monkeys. So. Well, but the thing from a la- the thing is, it's got to have internet. That's that's the issue because the the action is always global. Where my monkey is parked is incidental, really. I mean, it's just a matter of efficiency, I guess. Yes, I have a strong. I mean, it's funny because when we lived in the UK, I guess I avoided thinking about the weather. The weather really wasn't as bad as it could have been while we were there. We didn't get a lot of sunlight, but we had to adjust that basically with light globes and things like that. Yeah. So it really is just, like, cloudy all the time? You really don't see the sun very much? So through summer, the last summer we were there, there were no more than two days in a row of sunlight. (laughs) Oh, God, really? Yeah. Is, and is that standard and has always been that way there? I mean, I that's think not it was something new or It was something? a particularly bad summer, but it's yeah. not unusual. Okay. So, I mean, that's just sort of always been that way. That's just where they are. Yep. That's what it is there. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is why they had to cultivate intellectual pursuits and create an empire. They had to do something. Damn. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't go rollicking through the fields getting naked and stuff. You know, no. That, that wouldn't work. No. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it is a phenomenon, actually. I mean, I had, I relived this seeing my friend because there was talk when I was at Ericsson to move up to Sweden. And I made the very conscious decision that my fiance, as she was then, would have gone nuts. I mean, you know, and I probably would have gone nuts too living in Sweden. Well, it'd be interesting, yeah, to experiment with maybe, <laughs> but yeah. So I was there over midsummer, and I thought, if this is the highlight of the year, I've really got to get out of here. I mean, it was just like jet lag midsummer, you know, two hours of night. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, you have to, I guess, live by a clock. I mean, there isn't much else you can do. I guess I don't know. I, well, I guess people who live there all the time are used to it, right? They deal with it. Yeah, they have very thick. Black curtains, I heard, which is not what was available for me where I was. Okay, so they live uh, a different cycle. They don't let that cycle overrun their regular. They create their own cycle. Yeah, but I mean, also I was in the city, and I think in the city you would get younger folk that would just enjoy midsummer as a kind of party time, and certainly they were out and about for you know as much time as possible. (laughs) Well. That mentality doesn't have a long way to go anyway. I wouldn't worry about that one. <laughs> well, yes. True, true. Party time! <laughs> yeah, I was five, I think I was five or six stories up. There were wild rabbits as well. I mean, I kind of expected to see other kinds of feral animals, but the only kinds of feral animals I saw were feral rabbits, which was very curious. I wonder if they were actually, um, you know, maintained because they, you know, kept the grass short and various other things. But yeah, I took a number of photos of feral rabbits up from the, you know, whatever story I was on, fourth, fifth story. You know, I've actually seen a squirrel here in my neighborhood, and I was really surprised. I've lived here for about five years now, and I've only seen it one time. Wow. We see squirrels all the time here. Well, they're in a lot of places. Yeah, they're not totally. It's just that that was really rare for where I live. Yeah. And, uh, I That's was so, strange. But but unfortunately, that was the only time. That was about two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I don't spend enough time in your part of the world here. And we went down to visit the in-laws, and we ended up going to 
Oh, where do we end up? We ended up in some place because my wife had worked out that we could go to a, funnily enough, a sushi restaurant that was a chain of one that we went to in Las Vegas so we could enjoy a particular cup of fish that you can only get in these chains. And um, through that, we went through some part of LA, but we just avoid LA like the plague when we're in your part of the world. Yeah. Well, I would avoid any place where there are too many language monkeys congregated. And the just the car culture. I mean, obviously, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have some of that as well. Yeah. But in LA, it's just... Well, that's why you got to have a limousine and a driver. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. don't, you don't have to worry about it, you know. You can just be online. Yeah, I think and you just step out of uh, out of the matrix and into Squish. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? I need to watch that Falling Down movie again. That always captivated me that you could actually travel by foot in LA if you're willing to be sufficiently militant. <laughs> sufficiently militant? Well, you'd have to jump over fences and you'd have to do a wide variety of things in order to make relatively oh, as the crow flies pedestrian movement in LA. Yeah, okay. Which struck me really strongly. I mean, even in London, you can, even with the kind of M whatever systems that they have skirting London, you can still typically get from one place to another. Even here, actually, there's a good quantity of overpass footbridges, of which there are some in LA, but they just don't have the density for pedestrian traffic. Yeah, people don't walk. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's for homeless people. Exactly. Which is, that's exactly my optimal means of movement is walking i mean i would like to live in a city where i could basically yeah. through walking. oh yeah well transport. if we designed our cities intelligently yes everything would be within walking distance easily yes yeah that, there'd be no and then there'd be good rail transport that takes you everywhere you want to go for free and mm. it's got a starbucks on board <laughs> now you're <laughs> just being cynical here no i'm not i'm being absolutely Real, except for Starbucks, but you know, <laughs> that's ref- what I'm saying. Yeah. Refreshments and food, and uh, I mean, it, it, the fact that it's moving is irrelevant. All the amenities of society are available to you as you're moving from one location to another. So, in terms of traveling by Amtrak as a means of seeing the US, and in particular as a means of Having the kind of discussions that you previously had over Skype but in Squish, my experience with Amtrak, even traveling for small distances, is that I will always strike up a, a conversation with the person sitting next to me. And I will always sure. get a really interesting insight through those kind of experiences. Have you ever traveled by Amtrak any distance in this country? No, but I, I used Mimi's Cafe as sitting at the counter uh, for that purpose, for oh, doing certainly. my research. <laughs> So how many do you still do you still eat at Mimi's or No, no, no. That's been years and years ago. I've graduated from the University of Mimi's long ago. <laughs> but the expense factor, I mean Mimi's is actually, you know, it's It's I a nice you, little restaurant. Yeah. You can get yeah, they still have some relatively economic breakfasts and you can Oh, get I didn't eat there. I just oh no, I just drank coffee. Mm. They all knew me. I was I went in there every morning. It was just part of my routine. I'd start <laughs> off, I brought the new I still read the newspaper in those Gosh. days. And I'd go in in the morning and order a cup of coffee. Once in a while, I'd eat, but usually not. And I'd sit there for three or four hours reading the newspaper. And if somebody sat down next to me, uh, sometimes we'd have a conversation, sometimes not. But, you know, that was just part of my routine for, I don't know, probably 20 years. Long time. So through 
the creation of Heronstone prior to Heronstone or after Heronstone? Oh, way prior to that. Okay, so this is 70s, 80s? You know, I'd have to think about it. I, you know, honestly, my sense of the, of the past is just a blur to me, but uh, it, it, it was a, a long-established pattern, and, and I really don't know, honestly. This is a long time ago, <laughs> when, and I did it for years. It wasn't always Mimi's. It started at other restaurants when I lived in Redondo. Okay, it started when I was in Redondo Beach, so that was at least 30 years ago. Mm. So, yeah. And then you uh, migrated to Starbucks more recently, but you've, have you yeah. dropped off Starbucks now? Yeah, yeah, I don't go there anymore. So that's a relatively recent thing. Is it the cost, or is it just the ambience? Oh, it's just... You know, I'm, I had to get up early, a little bit earlier to do that in, before I go to work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause the only times I did that was on the days I worked because, oh, I, okay. you know, so I used to go every day is, is sort of my substitute. See, the other thing is for a long time, my tradition was to go somewhere in the public and position myself there where I, so I could observe <laughs> and, inter- and interact with people, with yes. language monkeys, you know, yes. that, that was the thing. So, uh, any any restaurant does that has a counter it works just fine so uh but starbucks was cool i like starbucks and it was perfect for that so yeah but the actually counters at at restaurants were really better i should have stuck with that i think really Hmm. Hmm. well it's interesting actually the counters at restaurants as a married man, particularly when I go to a restaurant with my wife and I sit at a counter, I'm far less likely to start a conversation than if I go to a counter by myself. That makes and sense. The yeah. frequency that I go to counters by myself are usually, for example, uh, the trip to Michigan and Chicago and these kind of things. I I had the, the ability to sit at a couple of counters through that experience. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's standard part of travel, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, because this culture doesn't really so in the uk there is no real aside from what they call greasy spoons or occasionally pubs there's no real breakfasting culture and a greasy spoon typically won't serve will serve breakfast for lunch there will actually be no breakfasting my wife found this very difficult when we lived there that we couldn't actually go out for breakfast <laughs> and we had to and when we did go out we had for to breakfast, wait till noon we had to go to some pub which typically didn't have particularly good breakfast they were just they had people that were staying there that would come down for the breakfast and we were buying the breakfast that the you know the, the yeah. visiting traveling public would be purchasing um but yes it's a completely different culture yeah. in australia yeah. similarly you yeah you just wouldn't have that kind of environment for breakfast although bakeries are relatively prevalent in australia and to a lesser extent the uk and you can get bakery food for breakfast pretty easily that being said now, obviously Starbucks has done a substantial land grab in Australia, although, funnily enough, McDonald's, through their Mac Cafe branding, was able to... Um, <laughs> Fend them off. Well, no, to, yeah, to substantially reduce the land grab of Starbucks. And I think, really? Yeah, I think the... That must be a first in history, isn't it? I mean... Well, uh, well the, the, the thing about Australia... Yeah, the thing about Australia is that the... I mean, in Sydney... I used to joke with friends that when I'd go up there, there was literally a McDonald's. Uh, 
on some streets, there were McDonald's on opposing corners. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the McDonald's had been remarkably successful in Australia. Wow. There's an active group on the internet, which a number of my school friends are part of, associated with area by area going after McDonald's. <laughs> and they will pick at them and they'll do all these kind of things, which for me now here culturally is quite interesting to watch. But the phenomenon that I saw in Australia, because really this McDonald's expansion occurred while I was there. It occurred through my, um, you know, from age 10 through to when I left Australia. My first experience in a McDonald's, I think, was when I was about 11. My parents were already divorced and my father decided that, you know, I needed some exposure to this strange food. Um, but it was, it rolled out very, very rapidly. One of my brothers actually worked in a McDonald's. I mean, as his kind of high school job, oh. which was very curious because one of his friends videotaped the event of ordering chicken nuggets or something from him. And then I was presented <laughs> the video very briefly after I got married with my wife. I was allowed to have the videotape for precisely a weekend and then my father took the videotape away. So, yeah, I had a strange kind of hello wedding thing from my brother that I didn't actually get to keep, strangely enough. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, in Australia, what used to be there, which were absolutely wonderful. I mean, thankfully my mother lives near one is what was called a fish and chip shop, which is part of the UK phenomena. But the Australian fish and chip shop would typically do a wide variety of other things that you couldn't get in a UK fish and chip shop. But part of it would always be some form of hamburger, typically with a pineapple on top or something like that. I mean, really quite <laughs> curious burgers, you know, the, yeah, sure. the tropical burger and all this kind of stuff. And they were, they were, you know, what would be called, I guess, mom and pop shops in this country. And they were all decimated by the McDonald's. I mean, the McDonald's just pretty well eliminated all of them. Really? Um, it strikes me the same yeah. with bookstores. Well, see, that's not yeah. a problem with McDonald's. That's a problem with fucking idiot human consumers. I would argue you can't blame yeah. McDonald's no. for that. No, they just they just came in and said, "Here, try this." <laughs> yeah. God, it's sad. My recollection was that the prices at these places weren't actually that bad. I just think there was a combination of factors. Like they would always sell cigarettes to children. And things like that. I mean, there was always, yeah. they always had some other. Avenue. There was a cigarette machine there. I, I remember the, the first hamburger place that showed up in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 it might have been a McDonald's, but I'm not, I'm not really sure because I don't really remember now. Yeah. But anyway, it was really cheap and, uh, and there was nothing between that place and home and school. Yeah. <laughs> and so. Uh, Everyone, if I had a dime, I think I'd get a hamburger for a dime or something. Yeah. But that was really a treat, man. That oh, yeah. was awesome. <laughs> yeah. God, but see, just imagine this whole idea that that's the kind of culture we grow up dreaming in, where you have to have money to get this stuff. It well, all costs something. But you see, I mean, this is something that I... On some level, was just, I mean, I'm very poor associated with organizing these kind of capitalistic endeavors. I mean, if you look at Model Rail Radio, what we do here, you know, aside from my writing, which has pretty dismally failed in a commercial sense, the stuff that I've seen success in has always been given away. And the actual notion that you have to create, create these commercial entities for your hobbies has always seemed really alien to me. Yeah. 
if it comes, it comes. Uh, that would be nice, <laughs> you know. And it certainly doesn't hurt to do things that are in alignment with that happening. But mm. uh, it seems to me the importance is to get the ideas out there. Well, I think you know, you and I share this disability. I think there there are a good group of people, and it is very much a philosophy in this country. I mean, we've talked previously associated with my experiences, you know, doing podcasts with a, another fellow and being introduced to his friends who had, you know, multiple limited liability companies associated with their Star Wars wiki and all this kind of strange stuff. That the first process that you needed to do was actually to create a corporate structure around your hobby. I mean, <laughs> this always strikes me as very, but it exists. And I think. I, I increasingly am very relativist associated with attributing negative things in these views because obviously there's a coherent cultural element and I mean, you know, if you, I'm speaking to you as you are listening to me on a, a Mac of some description, an Apple computer and, uh, you know, I mean, all these kind of capitalist endeavors seem to, you know, net something in a, Oh, capitalism, I'm not, I don't think it's a philosophically good or evil thing. There was, capitalism was part of the industrial revolution and it was an important part of our history, an essential part of our history. And now it's quickly becoming part of our past. It was also intelligibly connected with the technical revolution as well. Well, they're related. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's not, it gave birth to it. It gave birth to its own elimination. Yeah. Which is as it should be. <laughs> if only I had an iPhone close by. If you had a what? An iPhone close by. Our Persian is being held down and forcibly groomed uh. by another cat, which is taking my side vision. The Persian has now uh. jumped away from the other cat. Um, I've got nothing left to talk about, Aaron. Really? I'm completely out of conversation currently. <laughs> Well, that's pretty good timing. It's been a long day for me, Heron. It started early and yes. Yeah, well now now you got the weekend, right? Yeah, it's gonna be an interesting weekend actually. We are we saw a comedian on Netflix. We both liked the comedian. I liked the comedian on Facebook. Two weeks after seeing the comedian's Netflix special, I saw her on Facebook because I'd liked the comedian that he was performing in San Jose. And tomorrow, my wife and I are going to see him perform. <laughs> and a lot of people are terrified by that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it boggles my mind. Yeah, it's just so cool. They want know? to see tampon commercials. That's what they want to see. They want <laughs> to turn guess. it on and see sofa and tampon commercials followed by car ads. <laughs> That's what they want to see, Heron. I, I applaud them for that. I don't. <laughs> Well, it's a whole new world, man. The, the the potential for the future is unknown. Oh man, that's that's what's so cool about it is that we don't really know what the fuck we're doing. But but sadly, <laughs> I think the potential for my evening is known, Heron. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll do the same thing next week. Okay. Well, hopefully not the same thing. Well, but something, maybe something different. Something similar. Yeah. Along okay. the same vein. I'll All talk right. to you soon. Take care. Good night. Good night.